Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Failed Critics, Episode 7. I'm Steve Norman. I'm joined this week by Owen Hughes and James Diamond. Hello. Fresh back from the Prometheus World premiere. Uh, He's now got all Hollywood and demanding on us. (laughs) I want want blue M&Ms. Come on, get it sorted, Steve. It's your job. Ask for a rider with room temperature, mineral water and... A big bowl of Revels with all the coffee-flavoured ones picked out. <laughs> I've got Hollywood friends now. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm leaving you guys behind. I'm friends with Jason Fleming now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, no Jerry McCauley this week. He's off on holiday and off for an operation. So uh, good luck to him with the operation. Anyway, James is just going to quickly explain to you some changes to the, the blog and the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Uh, firstly, I want to say we achieved over 500 downloads in May, so thank you again to everyone who's been downloading this and spreading the word about this podcast. Really, really uh, excited by how well we've done. We've now got a new web page. We've redesigned the blog slightly, and we have our own proper domain now. It's just failedcritics.com. Nice and easy to tell people about, nice and easy for people to find. And what I'm looking for is um, it's the home of this podcast, obviously, But it's also, I want to get some articles on there from anyone who has some stories to tell about film. We're not going to be talking about latest news and things like that because we can't hope to compete with that kind of thing. But I'm looking for anyone who's got some articles about their own personal views on film, uh, reviews, uh, or just something really interesting. So if you want to have a look at that, then contact us at failedcritics.com. We also have a new Twitter, which should be up and running this week, which is just at Failed Critics as well. And that will uh, not just be my own personal worldview, but that will also be operated by everyone on the podcast as well. So you get a good mix of views there. So follow at Failed Critics. And our Facebook page remains the same, facebook.com slash Failed Critic. Um, Also quickly, I just want to plug a couple of projects that I know about, that I found out about this week. I think they're really interesting. First one is... A film called Rocky Road is doing a crowdfunding effort. Uh, It's written by a chap called Daily James Francis, directed by Lee Christopher Tomes. It is Rocky meets Shane Meadows, apparently, but not 24-7. This is more of a a, a kind of comedy. But you can donate uh, and invest in a film. If you go to Indiegogo.com slash Rocky Road, they've got a whole different load of packages there. You can even just donate $1.00 and get your name in the credits on the finished film. But there's a whole different range of packages, different things you can get. Really exciting idea. And, you know, we're going to, I think, uh, we're going to, well, we talked about a 
crowdfunded film last week in Iron Sky. We're probably going to talk about it again this week. Crowdfunding is the future of independent filmmaking. Here's a chance to get in at the, the ground level. And also, I just want to say, uh, Citizen 598 are making a short film. Really interesting idea. And they're looking for, not money this time, ideas. They're looking for film. They're trying to make a short film entirely out of film quotes. If you go to citizen598.com slash short film, you can find out how to uh, yeah, give some ideas, maybe uh, do some music, do some graphics. They're just looking for people to donate some ideas rather than some money. So I think that's a really good idea as well. Okay. Well, this week we'll uh, start off with the good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, so the films that we've been watching this week, other than the obvious new release that we'll be reviewing later, Triple Bill, in honour of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, we'll be looking at films featuring kings and queens. And finally, in the new two-part way we do it, we'll be reviewing Prometheus, directed by Ridley Scott and starring Michael Fassbender, Charlize Theron, Idris Elba and many others. Um, and obviously doing the spoiler alert section, talking about the film in full after that. So let's begin with the good, the bad and the ugly. And how about we start with you, Owen? Okay, cool. I watched a few good films this week, actually. So um got a few to talk about, but I'll start with uh, probably the best film. Uh, um well, undeniably the best film, I think. I watched Godfather this week, um, so I couldn't leave it out. <laughs> I haven't watched any zombie films, though. That's the problem. So I haven't got any bad <laughs> ones to talk about. But no, I got, watched Godfather. Um, it's probably, I think it's actually only the second time I've ever seen it. And first right. time I saw it, I, I, I really liked it. But, you know, I thought, well, I have seen better films before. I'm probably going to see better films than that. But actually watching it again now, um, no, it's, it's a, just an absolutely awesome film everything from the first scene where um i forget the guy's name but he's talking to don corleone at his um daughter's wedding uh, right through to the very end scene um with the doors closing i thought it was just a fantastic film it's very stylish very slick um it's uh, just a great piece of filmmaking really um all the characters great just the swagger that they all carry with them uh, which is partly down to the performances from everyone in the cast who's uh, not only just playing really well-written characters, but they all put in just fantastic performances. I don't think there's a single person in the film who you could say gave a poor performance or not an exceptional performance even, because everyone is just at the top of their game. Marlon Brando in particular, um, playing Don Corleone, is just out of this world almost. It, 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 I don't think there's a better um, example of how to play a character perfectly really he's just absolutely spot on everything his performance is just breathtaking he's um it's arguably one of the best in cinematic history and uh you know i, I wouldn't disagree with that i think he's um just fantastic in the film he gets everything spot on and if al pacino is good as well <laughs> you know every, everyone in it is just fantastic i can't really say any more about the performances because they're just just so superb and um but the plot is fantastic as well the way it sort of evolves around each character uh, as it sort of goes on it doesn't have a, a, a linear story in so much as it's just a straight line because it's got so many different waves in it and it just goes through different periods in the film where there's different things happening and, and, and each bit is it is beautifully crafted and they all 
slot together really well. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could go on about it for ages, but I think I'll, <laughs> I'll stop there because it's um, going to take up the whole podcast otherwise. <laughs> but no, it's a brilliant but film, yeah. and um, I'm sure I'm sure everyone agrees. Yeah, uh, and um, you've mentioned Pacino there. I think Pacino's... And it's uh, it's the scene in this film which I always cite as my favourite example of film acting, i.e., you know, doing that acting where the camera can close in, up, close in on your face. It's not at all like stage acting. Very different. Yeah. Uh, and it's the moment where Pacino realised, you know, is getting ready to make that hit in the restaurant after getting the gun from the toilet and you've got the the train going in the background and it and it is the best example of acting with your eyes I've ever seen he just oh yeah he tells an entire story with his eyes um and that to me is the epitome of genius screen acting and I, I love that scene obviously yeah the film is a masterpiece and we don't really need to say too much more than that do we no, I think that I think we should start there because, like I say, we'll just go on talking about it forever. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, what else have you been watching, Owen? Um, well, I did watch another good film, which I'll just talk about briefly, um, called uh, Double Indemnity from 1944. I think it's one of the um, iconic film noirs. Uh, it's about a guy. Welcome to Failed Critics, Episode 7. I'm Steve Norman. I'm joined this week by Owen Hughes and James Diamond. Hello. Fresh back from the Prometheus world premiere. Uh, he's now got all Hollywood and demanding on us. <laughs> I, want, I want blue M&Ms. Come on, get it sorted, Steve. It's your job. Ask for a rider with room temperature, mineral water and... A big bowl of Revels with all the coffee-flavoured ones picked out. <laughs> I've got Hollywood friends now. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm leaving you guys behind. I'm friends with Jason Fleming now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, no Jerry McCauley this week. He's off on holiday and off for an operation, so uh, good luck to him with the operation. Anyway, James is just going to quickly explain to you some changes to the, the blog and the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Uh, firstly, I want to say we achieved over 500 downloads in May, so thank you again to everyone who's been downloading this and spreading the word about this podcast. Really, really uh, excited by how well we've done. We've now got a new web page. We've redesigned the blog slightly, and we have our own proper domain now. It's just failedcritics.com. Nice and easy to tell people about, nice and easy for people to find. And what I'm looking for is um, it's the home of this podcast, obviously, but it's also, I want to get some articles on there from anyone who has some stories to tell about film. We're not going to be talking about latest news and things like that because we can't hope to compete with that kind of thing. But I'm looking for anyone who's got some articles about their own personal views on film, uh, reviews, uh, or just something really interesting. So if you want to have a look at that, then contact us at failedcritics.com. We also have a new Twitter, which should be up and running this week, which is just at Failed Critics as well. And that will uh, not just be my own personal worldview, but that will also be operated by everyone on the podcast as well. So you get a good mix of views there. So follow at Failed Critics. 
and our Facebook page remains the same, facebook.com slash failed critic. Um, also, quickly, I just want to plug a couple of projects that I know about, that I found out about this week. I think they're really interesting. First one is a film called Rocky Road is doing a crowdfunding effort. Uh, it's written by a chap called Daily James Francis, directed by Lee Christopher Tomes. It is Rocky meets Shane Meadows, apparently, but not 24-7. This is more of a, a, a kind of comedy. But you can donate uh, and invest in a film. If you go to Indiegogo.com slash Rocky Road, they've got a whole different load of packages there. You can even just donate $1 and get your name in the credits on the finished film. But there's a whole different range of packages, different things you can get. Really exciting idea. And, you know, we're going to, I think, uh, we're going to, well, we talked about a crowdfunded film last week in Iron Sky. We're probably going to talk about it again this week. Crowdfunding is the future of independent filmmaking. Here's a chance to get in at the, the ground level. And also, I just want to say, uh, Citizen 598 are making a short film. Really interesting idea. And they're looking for, not money this time, ideas. They're looking for film. They're trying to make a short film entirely out of film quotes. If you go to citizen598.com slash short film, you can find out how to uh, give some ideas, maybe uh, do some music, do some graphics. They're just looking for people to donate some ideas rather than some money. So I think that's a really good idea as well. Okay. Well, this week we'll uh, start off with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, so the films that we've been watching this week, other than the obvious new release that we'll be reviewing later, Triple Bill, in honour of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, we'll be looking at films featuring kings and queens. And finally, in the new two-part way we do it, we'll be reviewing Prometheus, directed by... Ridley Scott and starring Michael Fassbender, Charlize Theron, Idris Elba, and many others. Um, and obviously doing the spoiler alert section, talking about the film in full after that. So let's begin with the good, the bad, and the ugly. And how about we start with you, Owen? Okay, cool. I watched a few good films this week, actually, so i um, got a few to talk about. But I'll start with uh, probably the best film at, um undeniably the best film. I think I watched Godfather this week. Um, so I couldn't leave it out. <laughs> I haven't watched any zombie films, though. That's the problem. So I haven't got any bad <laughs> ones to talk about. But no, I got, watched Godfather. Um, it's probably... I think it's actually only the second time I've ever seen it. And the first oh, time I saw it, I, I, I really liked it. But, you know, I thought, well, I have seen better films before. I'm probably going to see better films than that. But actually watching it again now, um, it, no, it's, it's just an absolutely awesome film everything from the first scene where um i forget the guy's name but he's talking to don corleone at his um his daughter's wedding uh, right through to the very end scene um with the doors closing i thought it was just a fantastic film it's very stylish very slick um it's uh, just a great piece of filmmaking really um all the characters great just the swagger that they all carry with them uh, which is partly down to the performances from everyone in the cast who's uh, not only just playing really well-written characters, but they all put in just fantastic performances. I don't think there's a single person in the film who you could say gave a poor performance or not an exceptional performance even, because everyone is just at the top of their game. Marlon Brando in particular, um, playing Don Corleone, is just out of this world almost. It, 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 I don't think there's a better um, example of how to play a character perfectly really he's just absolutely spot on everything his performance is just breathtaking he's um it's arguably 
one of the best in cinematic history. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think he's um, just fantastic in the film. He gets everything spot on. And Al Pacino is good as well. <coughs> you know, every, everyone in it is just fantastic. I can't really say any more about the performances because they're, they're just just so superb. And um, But the plot is fantastic as well. The way it sort of evolves around each character uh, as it sort of goes on. It doesn't have a, a, a linear story in so much as it's just a straight line because it's got so many different waves in it and it just goes through different periods in the film where there's different things happening and, and, and each bit is... It is beautifully crafted and they all slot together really well. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could go on about it for ages, but I think I'll, I'll stop there because it's um, going to take up the whole podcast otherwise. <laughs> but no, it's a brilliant but film yeah. and um, I'm, sure, I'm sure everyone agrees. Yeah, uh, and um, you mentioned Pacino there. I think Pacino's... And it's, uh, it's the scene in this film which I always cite as my favourite example of film acting i.e you know doing that acting where the camera can close in up close in on your face it's not at all like stage acting very different yeah. uh and it's the moment where pacino realized you know is getting ready to make that hit in the restaurant after getting the gun from the toilet and you've got the the train going in the background and it and it is the best example of acting with your eyes i've ever seen he just oh yeah he yeah. tells an entire story with his eyes um and that to me is the epitome of genius screen acting and i I love that scene obviously yeah the film is a masterpiece and we don't really need to say too much more than that do we no i think that i think we should stop there because like i say we'll just go on talking about it forever i'm sure (laughs) (laughs) so what else have you been watching owen um, well, I did watch another good film, which I'll just talk about briefly, um, called uh, Double Indemnity from 1944. I think it's one of the um, iconic film noirs. Uh, it's about a guy played by um, Fred McMurray, who is uh, an insurance salesman. And he goes to this lady's house, and she's obviously uh, not that into her husband. And they... <laughs> sort of put a plot together to bump him off, basically, and also to get him to sign an, uh, a life insurance cover so they can take the money and run. Um, but then Fred McMurray's character comes up with the idea of, um, well, actually, if they uh, bump him off on a train, uh, then it induces this double indemnity clause, which means they get double the money, because it's so unlikely that anyone would ever be killed on a train, of course, that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they'll get lots of money. So, I mean, there are a few few sort of niggles with the plot. It's not as perfectly crafted a story um, as it thinks it is. But you get that sort of problem with um, uh, film noirs anyway. But I just love the, char- uh, the characters in it. Uh, I think there's a guy in it. Um, um, Edward G. Robinson plays an insurance broker called Barton Keyes, who is just fantastic. <laughs> I really, really enjoyed his character. He's very... Um, it's much like um, what's the guy from Seinfeld? Not obviously Seinfeld, but his mate George. He's, he's, George Costanza, yeah. Lot, yeah, he reminds me a lot of him with his sort of mannerisms and his um, very pernickety. Um, but no, he's he's a brilliant character. I, I, it's worth watching the film just for his um, for the performance from Edward Robinson for that. But um, yeah, plot is you know a few holes like I say it irks me a little bit with some of the, the things they kind of wash over. Uh, but it's a very stylish film, very entertaining film, and the dialogue is just classic film noir dialogue. It's uh, yeah, great film. Really enjoyed it actually. Uh, I'm 
I hadn't actually seen that many from that genre before. So it was almost an introduction to proper film noirs and um, no, really enjoyed it. Okay, any other films you want to talk about this week? Well, just to um, capitalise, I suppose, if it's if it's capitalising, um, on the fact that I regularly get uh, referred to as not liking Star Wars, I did watch a George... Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I watched a THX 1138, um, which is um, his first film, George Lucas's first film, the first feature-length film, I think based on a, a short story that he made, and it's set in a sort of dystopian future and um there are people who are controlled through drugs they're all sedated and and they're drone-like workers and but the main characters in this film the focus is on a couple of people who make the uh robot poops that uh enforce the law in their world but i was just really 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 bored watching it um it was just so dumb. I'm not, I'm not normally one to criticise a film for not having much uh, going for it. You know, I've watched Solaris. I quite enjoyed Solaris. You know, I've watched 2001 Space Odyssey, as Jerry mentioned. Uh, sorry, Steve mentioned last week. And I really love that. And that's got a kind of slow pace to it as well. But this was just so boring. A lot of people think it's um, visionary. But uh, for me, it, I didn't think that at all. It was just... Um, there wasn't much for it that it was trying to say, um, and it was saying it really badly. There were a few nice little touches, I guess. Okay, so there's one bit where they're talking about the economics of the world that they're in, and you just get little snippets of conversations from other characters in the background, and they're interesting to hear. You know, there's a lot of creativity that's gone into it. I can appreciate that from, from George Lucas' point, but it's not really. It's not really worth discussing almost because it's just, I just didn't like it, basically. I just would not recommend that film and I'm not going to watch it again. (laughs) I've not seen it, uh, Owen, but I heard this week that George Lucas has apparently retired from making big budget blockbuster films. Uh, and he wants to go to his garage and start making homemade films. I'm assuming he means like this. Um, does that mean that he's going to make worse films than the Star Wars prequels from now on? Is that is that the impression you would get? No budget. There are some quite sort of uh, fancy. In fact, there's a, a bit towards the end where there's this car chase, which is it reminded me a little bit of um, you know in uh, Batman Begins where he's driving through the streets in the, the fast car. It's, it reminded me a lot of that, actually, and it was actually quite entertaining to watch. But, you know, it's not so low budget that he's going to be able to make that in his garage, really. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, that was my bad film for the week. And, um, yes, Jerry, what have... Uh, James, sorry, what have you been watching this week? Oh, we miss Jerry already, don't we, bless? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I've actually watched three brilliant films this week. I've not watched a bad film, so I'm really happy. Uh, I'm going to, a couple of them I've rewatched, and a lot of people have seen them, so I'll quickly talk about those. First one is They Live, directed by John Carpenter from 1988. Yeah, oh, I love that. I, I'm a big John Carpenter fan anyway. They Live, if you haven't seen it, basically a drifter played by, at the time, the WWF wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper. 
discovers a pair of sunglasses that allow him to wake up to the fact that aliens have taken over the Earth and they're basically subjugating mankind with subliminal messaging, um, all the billboards which advertise fancy perfumes and clothes. Actually, they're saying to us, obey, consume, sleep, and things like that. And loads of the people on Earth are actually aliens, and these sunglasses help you see those. Um, Apparently, Piper was cast after Carpenter watched him on WrestleMania, which I think is a brilliant... Yeah, he's just watching the rest. Yeah, he's who I need for my... Which is why I love John Carpenter. He does work outside of mainstream Hollywood thinking, which is great. But the thing is, it's actually a really good performance from Piper, or uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, uh, as he was uh, back then. I think it's a really good... And I I think he has gone on to do some terrible straight-to-video stuff after this. This is the only kind of, like, semi-big film he ever did. I I think it's a bit of a shame, because he has got some charisma in this film. And there's a brilliant fight scene in it. Uh, About two-thirds of the way through, uh, Piper and Keith David, they did a fight scene. Now, it was scripted as only meant to last uh, 30 seconds. But apparently unbeknownst to Carpenter, they practiced it for three weeks and came up with over five minutes worth of a fight. And Carpenter liked it so much, he stuck it in the film. And um, anyone who's seen the Cripple Fight episode of South Park, that fight scene there is a blow-for-blow reshot of the fight from They Live, which I think is brilliant as well. But yeah, They Live, absolutely fantastic, great fun, silly, um, but at the same time, plenty of good action. I highly recommend it. Um, next film I saw, well, I rewatched The Usual Suspects this week, um, 1995, Brian Singer directed. I'm mentioning this because I'm kind of, I'm going through the IMDb Top 250 at the moment and I'm also rewatching the ones I'd seen before. This is one I'd seen before. And do you know what? It's still as fantastic as when I first saw it, uh, when I was 16, 17. It, um, and also what it made me think, it could be in so many trip bills that I've already got planned for later on in this run so I'm not going to talk about it too much because it's clearly going to show up in one of my triple bills but this was a debut film from director Brian Singer this is one of the finest ensemble casts I've ever seen you've got some really you've got people like um, Benicio Del Toro Kevin Spacey obviously Chaz Palamantari uh, Gabriel Byrne uh, Stephen Baldwin Pete Postlethwaite it's packed with really great performances and do you know what hour and 40 minutes nice and punchy there's not a second of screen time wasted. Absolutely love Usual Suspects. One of my one of my ten out of ten films that is. And then finally, and I'm so sad Jerry's not here. This week I watched Pan's Labyrinth. Um, finally got round to opening the cellophane. <laughs> 2006, uh, Guillermo del Toro direct. Um, we've spoken about it on two podcasts. Uh, Jerry's already talked about it on two podcasts already. So I'm not going to tell you too much about the film because most people have either seen it or hopefully listened to the podcast who's listening to this. Um, but wow, why, why did I put that off so long? What a fantastic film. Um, you know, in, in the fascist Spain, 1944, bookish young stepdaughter of a sadistic army officer escapes into an eerie but captivating fantasy world. That's the IMDb summary, and it doesn't even begin to explain how amazing this film is. All I want to say about it, though, is there are a couple of ways you can read this film, and especially the end of the film. 
And, and the way I read it was that it is a beautiful film, but it is one of the bleakest stories I have ever seen. That is one interpretation of it. I'd, I'd like to speak to other people who may, have maybe taken an, another interpretation from it, but my God, it's bleak. Uh, and about three quarters of the way through the film, I'm thinking, God, they're really dragging me down to the depths here before hopefully going to give me uh, a beautiful, heartwarming payoff. In my eyes, they didn't, but the film works because... I still loved the payoff. So um, there's my three films. Three absolute, br- absolutely brilliant films. I recommend you go and see all of them this week. Well, I only managed to watch one film this week. It was... I don't... Actually, I can't say it was good or bad. I can't decide whether it was good or bad. It was Iron Sky. Yes! Which, which, <laughs> which James reviewed last week. Storytelling... Well, a story about the Nazis who escaped to the moon after 1945, and then they decide to come back and try and take over the world. And I just can't tell whether it was good or bad. It wasn't. It wasn't. Somebody. Somebody said, "Was that because it was so bad? It was good." It's not that. I can't decide whether I watched a film that. The, the, the plot didn't really work because they were trying to put in too many messages and t- and trying to parody something or take the mick out of something that didn't really work, or if they weren't trying to do that at all and it was just a, a, a amusing and entertaining film about Nazis from the moon trying to take over the Earth in about six years' time. So, yeah, no, having, I, having I know exactly not- what you mean. Part part of me thinks part of one part of me thinks sort of I keep changing my mind. Part of me thinks oh they were trying to throw in too many messages about um sort of you know when the two the two Nazis the the man and the woman I forget their names they end up getting hired briefly by the American president because she doesn't really realise who they are and sort of doing their campaigns and sort of saying that you know some modern day democracies are like Nazism and. You know, there's, there's, you could say there's a message about race in there as well, and all these other things, and that, um, that the say the president of America leaders now are more interested in winning votes through being popular rather than and running a country properly. You could say all those messages are there, and it doesn't really work, or you could just think none of that's actually there. It's just a really entertaining film where some Nazis come from the moon. Um, there's some funny bits, and you know some stuff blows up. So I, mean, I just don't know. I still can't decide what to make of it. I, 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 agree. I think that are because, because there are some brilliant bits yeah. and there are some terrible bits and you hmm. very rarely get a film which has some great highs and some great lows. Usually films either fall in the middle or are great or are bad, you know, with one or two bad points or good points. But no, this veers from brilliant to terrible at a regular interval. Um, and the fact, you know, the American president's performance I thought was terrible. I thought she was a terrible actress. She had some terrible hammy lines. Um, but the performance by the the main, kind of the Nazi teacher, the the, the naive Nazi, is a fantastic cinematic performance. It's brilliant acting, it's, brilliant especially when, uh, written. Well, at first when, basically, on the moon, the school kids see a 10-minute clip of The Great Dictator which is which is used as propaganda, yeah. but as far as she knows, as a teacher, that's all there is as well. And then she goes and sees yeah. the full sort of hour and a half version when she when she lands in America. 
in some cinema and she just comes out and can't believe it. And it's sort of, yeah, you know, but she is the heart of the film. hmm. Yeah. I did. I didn't like the, Um, the, 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 I didn't like the guy who played the astronaut, uh, the American astronaut. I don't know why. (laughs) <laughs> I, love, I, I actually gen- at some points weirdly this is going to sound really weird when he okay basically i'm not really spoiling too much here because it was in a lot of the pre-press stuff and it happens about 20 minutes into the film black astronaut gets turned into a white man by the nazis on the moon okay <laughs> happened weirdly when he was white he really reminded me of danny glover i've no idea why as a black man he didn't but as a white man a black man turned white reminded me of Danny Glover. And I, I kept watching him. I was watching him as a whited up Danny Glover. And and his entertainment, uh, his performance entertained there, me in that there, sense. There I don't one, know what that says about there me. Was one character, I don't know what that says about race. <laughs> there, there was one character that I thought was underused, which was, um, I can't remember the actual job title, but the guy who was playing the American president sort of military advisor. I thought a couple yeah. of lines that he had were actually really good and he was actually quite good. And I think he was a bit underused. Yeah. And and I did like the yeah. bit. And that... oh, sorry, go there on. There were some great scenes, I thought. Yeah. Um, the CGI was decent. Mm. It was better than a lot of films that cost a lot more to make that I've seen recently. And um, I, I, I did like the kind of United Nations uh, scenes towards the end. I yeah. thought that was when the American president was at her best as well, yeah. as in those well, it UN was, it was with, um There was a few nice jokes there. With, with it, was it Finland was the only country that didn't arm their, their spaceship? Yeah, and yeah. things like that. There was, a, there was a nice joke about Finland. There was a nice kind of whole thing about uh, international politics and stuff there. Mm. And that bit reminded me a little bit of Doctor Strangelove. You know, and it wasn't that bad a, bad a comparison. It, it is nowhere near being as brilliant um, as Doctor Strangelove. Because... But it, if you use a film like that as your influence, then you're, you know, you've started off on the right foot at least. I think, one of, just because I'm immature, one of the funniest lines for me was when all the sort of spaceships from different countries were, were signing off when they were, they were flying into battle and the Australian ship was called something like Spaceship Dundee. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there, there is some, there's some really cheap pop culture references. There's some very intelligent ones. You know, they are using The Dictator and Dr. Strangelove as their influences. And that to me, that's a good start and it shows some... Um, it shows some cinematic taste from the filmmakers, but, think, but at the same time, there is just some really like terrible stuff as well. But it was fun, and I think if you go along with it for the ride, you. But obviously, Steve is still really confused. Well, I think I need to speak to the, the writer and the director and find out what if they say to me, "No, we weren't trying to put across any messages or parody anything. We just made a bit of a silly film that was meant to be quite entertaining." Then I'll like it. If they try and say. Oh yeah, there was all these hidden messages in it about you know society and the way things are and democracy and I've been like, no, I don't like it. So I've, I need to speak to them really. <laughs> if you're listening, just sort of email me and, and we'll sort yeah, it out. Yeah, we'll see if we can yeah. we'll see if we can yeah. fix that up for you. Uh, anyway, we best end part one here, and in part two, we'll be back with Triple Bill. Welcome to part two of Failed Critics, the part we like to call Triple Bill, where we pick three films um, from a certain subject or topic. This week, as we said at the start of the show, 
With it being the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, 60 years for her on the throne, we are picking films with kings and queens in them. Royal theme. I'm going to kick us off with my three. Um, and they get progressively more abstract and linear from the theme as we go along. I'll start with one of the Lord of the Rings films. I'm going to go for Two Towers. The Two Towers. Good film. Okay. What's your king then? Well, Aragorn is the king of Gondor in exile. And I think The Two Towers is the film in the trilogy where he really starts to take on the mantle. Obviously, he doesn't become king until the final film properly. He's the king in exile, but he doesn't become the king until the final film. I think right towards the end of Fellowship of the Rings, when Boromir sort of tells him that he would follow him as a king, that's sort of when it starts. But in The Two Towers, you really start to see him become, you know, the, the leader or a king. You know, um, especially at the beginning with the absence of um, Gandalf. So I think it's also uh, it's, uh, it's a good film. It's also my favourite film of the trilogy. I, yeah, it's that I whole middle. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say it's that whole middle one of the trilogy that's always a bit darker and sets it up for the final one. Quite often, you get some of the uh, the better or yeah, at least the darker storylines in that middle one. And uh, no, I, I like Two Towers. Um, I think my fa- my favourite probably is still Fellowship of the Ring, actually. But uh, I, I think Two Towers is a great film. Mm. So yeah, that's that's my first film of the three. My second one, The Lion King. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that was nearly on my list. It's so nearly on my list. I mean, obviously, Mufasa, Simba's father, is king of the jungle, as a lion always is. And then you have to tell the story of how Simba takes his rightful place as king of the jungle after being, well, after his father was killed and he was sent away in supposed disgrace by his uncle Scar. Um, it's probably one of Disney's best films, if not the best they've done. Uh, it's got a brilliant soundtrack, brilliant plot, some really funny moments, an excellent cast. No, I yeah, it's like really nicely animated as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's that proper old school animation that you just don't see much anymore. Um, and obviously, right. you know, it's it's essentially Hamlet with animals. So, you know, you've got, <laughs> yeah. you've got then, uh, a classic story being told beautifully, yeah. And I mean, with the animation, while stuff like Toy Story and Monsters, Inc. looks fantastic, this, you know, th- this kind of animation sort of doesn't happen now. Just normal, well, I say normal, but, you know, non-computer generated yeah. animation. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if any of you have either seen the... Um... Uh, the recent Blu-ray edition of it, because uh, they've, they've updated the picture quality. And it. It's yeah. just fantastic to look at. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and you think that that's... There's one point in it where... The, where they... Sorry, carry on. <laughs> no, go, 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 Owen. <laughs> oh, well, I was just going to say, there's one point in um, the film where all the... I think it's near the beginning, where all the animals are just sort of putting around, singing, dancing. And there's... Um, a rhino that sits on something, or something that sits on the rhino, or something like that. I can't really remember it exactly. But there's, there's a point that we were watching it. I was watching it with my wife, and she says, "I always wondered what that bit was that he sat on because I couldn't see it quite clearly on the old VHS that she had when she was younger." And then you see it in the Blu-ray, and it's just exactly. I mean, it's just brilliant. It's, it's amazing. Um, in fact, I think it's probably the best film I've seen on Blu-ray for being updated to this new format. I think it looks 
just so crisp and, and fantastic. You're right, it looks stunning. And I remember yeah. a re- when it first came out, that first section actually didn't look great. It looked a bit rough and ready in places, that mm. that opening Circle of Life uh, song and dance yeah. type bit. The rest of the film looked great. That bit didn't look great, but on Blu-ray, it looks so much better. Uh, and you're right. It's, you and I think the reason we don't have films like that now is because it's, you know, you think how many people had to hand it. I think, didn't it take four or five years to actually make The Lion King? Uh, and studios can't afford that uh, investment in people and time these days when they can do it on computer and get and get a film knocked out in one or two years. And I think that's one of the main reasons that we don't see that anymore is because computers have just made made that, a little bit redundant and a bad business model, which is a shame because they do look fantastic. Yeah, I'm just trying to think what the last big film in that style was. I mean, I suppose Lilo and Stitch was quite big when that came out, and that. Mm-hmm. But there haven't really been many of the sort of Disney's 2D flat drawing uh, animated no, films like, since then, have they? Pixar just changed the game; they moved the goalposts. I think yeah. Hercules was like that, and After Lion King as well. I think, um, but mm. there, there was a Tarzan, but none of them have been as big as Lion King. And yeah, I think I think Pixar have just changed animation completely. Yeah, you could argue for the better, but I do think we're missing out on some some great. I, I think you're more likely to see that kind of animation now from uh, a foreign language studio. Yeah, I think so. Sorry, Steve, we, we, we hijacked you. <laughs> yeah, well, day, <laughs> anyway, yes, and Timon and Pumbaa are brilliant, so. And, yes, and, oh, al- yeah. and always will be. Final film of my triple bill. Here's where I'm going to annoy some people, but you'll probably see where I'm going straight away The Great Escape. Oh, yeah, oh, I get it. Yeah, I like <laughs> yeah. it. Like Steve it. McQueen. <laughs> yeah. I was struggling yeah. to think of films I'd actually, you know <laughs> that I liked with kings and queens in, um, but I went I went literal uh, linear and abstract after James gave me permission to, and I went for Steve McQueen in The Great Escape, which is one of my favourite films ever. It's just brilliant. Everything about it is brilliant. I mean, yeah, the Cooler King, yeah, yeah. definitely, yeah. Uh, so that is a really good choice, actually, Steve, because yeah. it is a great film and. No one. It, it, that's one of those characters where now you think no one else but Steve McQueen could have played that character, mm. and it's really great because Eddie Izzard talk does a great routine about the Great Escape, uh, Great Escape in one of his old routines, and it's basically um, Steve McQueen escapes and disguises him, or everyone else like goes to massive lengths to disguise themselves. Uh, to do this escape, and Steve McQueen disguises himself as an American man. Uh, and I, I love the fact that he's just like, sod it, I'm going to get on a motorbike and drive what must be at least a thousand miles in real life just to get to free. I, I, do you know, he is so damn cool in that film. Great choice, Steve. I mean, obviously, for people who don't know, it tells a story of a bunch of POWs in a German POW camp in World War II who make a plan to escape pretty much everybody. And the only film that, thing that annoys me with the film is the title because I think only three people actually escape. Yeah, a, a lot just a, a, dark at the end. A, a lot just get lined up. A, a lot just get lined up and shot. Yeah, I, do you know what? But, I, I don't think it's possible to spoil a film that's been out that long. No. If you haven't seen The Great Escape yet, it's your own fault if we've just spoiled the end for you. But yeah, and it, it, do you know what really annoys me again? As 
Yeah, it's all the British that get lined up and shot. <laughs> Steve McQueen just gets sent back to his prison yeah. cell to play baseball again. It's harsh. <laughs> but the cast as well for that film. I mean, there's there's a few films of great ensemble cast, and this is one of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure I'm yeah. I'm sure you could just list, you know, Steve McQueen, James Garner, Richard Attenborough, Charles Bronson, James Coburn. Yeah, it, it's a. It's, it's a proper who's who of Hollywood yeah. at the time. It's, uh, and, and again, you don't see many films like that these days anymore where they manage to put together not just a load of great character actors, because you still get some great ensemble casts with some character actors, but I think Ocean's Eleven, for example, is one of those rare films these days where you get a lot of big stars in one film. Mm. Uh, and I quite enjoy seeing those stars Dogma play was one. Dogma was one as well, surprisingly. It had a, a big ensemble cast of just a lot of... But yeah, I love the scene in the film as well, where they go through practicing sort of, if the ger- talk, you know, they've learnt German, and then you know, the in in sort of the POW camp when they're trying to catch him out, the, one of the guys trying to catch him out doing the forgery says, you know, changes to English quickly, and says, "Oh, don't let you know, don't let him do that to you because you'll get caught out." And they're on the train as well. At the end, their escape. I think it's Richard Attenborough and and one of the other characters, and they're on the train. And the German guard suspects them, starts talking to him in German, then changes to English, and he replies in English, and it's just—it's oh. beautifully written. Yeah. yeah, no, it's oh no, I I love the Great Escape. I can watch that every Christmas happily. Uh, let's move on to your three then, James. Okay, so yeah, obviously, I've also kind of gone a bit linear here, a uh, bit abstract. Um, I've taken a different route to what a lot of our, our royalists might, and actually what a lot of the people on Twitter have emailed into me as well. So my first one is it's from a film that I loved as a child. It's a fantastic film. I've gone for Jareth, King of the Goblins from Labyrinth, played by the almighty David Bowie. He is probably my favourite king of all time. Uh, those of you who haven't seen the film, A, Y, uh, but B, uh, a young girl called Sarah who um, is having to look after her younger brother and he is crying. He's a little baby and she asks the King of the Goblins to come and take him away and like some kind of fantastical social services. Jareth turns up, takes the baby and promises to make him uh, a prince in the house of music. And what music? The David Bowie soundtrack is fantastic. The man is a, a master of disguise. He's very handy with his hands as you see with a lot of kind of uh, globe juggling and things like that, and no entendre meant there. Um, and let's be honest, he's clearly packing a lot of heat in those skin tight jumpers there. Um, but yeah, my I, I love I love Bowie as Jareth King of the Goblins. He is he that almost sums up my childhood. That film, absolutely adore it. It's one of those films I'm, I'm sure I've seen when I was younger, but I have no recollection of. <laughs> I really, really do need to revisit because people tell me about certain things that happen in it. I go, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. But as the uh, experience of sitting down and watching the film, I've just got no memory of it. Yeah, it's and uh, also yeah. it's it's a Jim Henson production, so it's got some brilliant um, character puppet design and things like that. So if if like me as well, you are a bit of a fan of the Jim Henson workshop and things like it's. It's a great film for that as well. Uh, it's written by Terry Jones, uh, one of the Pythons. Uh, music by David Bowie. Basically, it was if someone just put together a film that I would like in a blender and chucked it out at me. Um, 
But yeah, I, I, I adore Labyrinth. What's next then in your list? Okay, this is when I go a bit more abstract now. Okay, I uh, my uh, number two, my favourite Queen. Oh my! Oh no, it's my second favourite Queen. Um, is Queen soundtracks uh, specifically to the film Flash Gordon? Um, I love a. I love Flash Gordon, but there isn't actually a king or a queen in it. There's a few princes. There is obviously an emperor uh, with Emperor Ming, but. The soundtrack is such a driving force in that film. Uh, Queen did it in 1980, and it was the first time a rock band had been asked to score a film. Only two of the tracks actually have vocals in them, um, and the rest of it is a lot of synthesizers. They were using the Moog synthesizer at the time. Uh, this week I found out it's not called a Moog. Apparently it's called a Moog to rhyme with Vogue. I, I, uh, it was the birthday of the guy who created the what I always thought was the Moog synthesizer, and he said, "No, my name rhymes with Vogue. I'm Robert Moog." But there you go. So I would just burst another myth for people there. So I'm now going to use the correct name, the Moog synthesizer. Um, it has the brilliant title uh, song "Flash." Ah, um, <laughs> intre- yeah. really interestingly about this film, it was a complete flop. Um, it grossed thirty million dollars across the world 15 million dollars of those were in the united kingdom we this country for some reason saw something amazing in this film maybe it was the fact that brian blessed plays such a big role in it god bless him um gordon's alive uh flash gordon it's on probably at least three times a year if you've not seen it you must see it it is Pure high camp, in a way, a bit like Iron Sky as well. I don't know if it is brilliant or terrible, but I cannot stop watching Flash Gordon. Also, Queen did the soundtrack to Highlander as well, which is another great film, although you can't find the soundtrack anywhere. There was never a soundtrack released, and their um, Kind of Magic album became an unofficial soundtrack for that film, which I found quite interesting. That was 1986. So, yeah, my second choice is Queen film soundtracks. And finally, then, in James's list... Okay, this is quite apt, uh, considering the film we are going to review afterwards. My final choice is The Alien Queen from Aliens, James Cameron's sequel to Alien from 1986. Um, It was typical Cameron, really. Uh, The Alien scared the absolute bejesus out of me in the original (laughs) film, but Cameron decides to go bigger, bolder, more complicated, and Aliens features the first time that we see The Alien Queen. Uh, who is giving birth to her young. Cameron actually decided not to bring H.R. Geiger back uh, as the only creature that needed redesigning was the alien queen. And Cameron, in typical style, said, oh, I've already done some drawings of it. So James Cameron designed the alien queen rather yeah. than H.R. Geiger. But it still looks good. Um, and the reason it took 14 to 16 operators to operate it at any one time, it's a massive piece of equipment you know puppet whatever uh but the great thing about it is it's got two fantastic scenes i think there are a lot of flaws with aliens but i really enjoyed it um however there's the scene where ripley rescues newt the young girl uh, who is cocooned in the alien queen's nest layer type thing and uh, a look where ripley basically bargains between as, as a mother figure to another mother figure to let her take newt away and she won't she threatens to burn the eggs and so there's this kind of uh impasse almost a, a mexican standoff between the alien queen and ripley it's a really nice scene but then another alien 
cocks it all up and Ripley has to burn the eggs. Alien Queen goes absolutely mental. Uh, and that leads us to the climactic battle. One of my favourite scenes from any film ever, where the Alien Queen has... It's that classic horror standard where you think you've killed the bad guy. And then all of a sudden, everyone's having a bit of a laugh and a joke. Oh, has, and then all of a sudden, the Alien Queen just rips Bishop in half. The android is spewing out his android milk everywhere. Uh, and the Alien Queen is looking for Newt. And Ripley gets into the mechanical suit, which they planted in our thoughts earlier in the film. If you're going to show a gun in the first act, then make sure it gets shot in the final act. Ripley comes out in her mechanical suit and yells, get away from her, you bitch. Fantastic. Brings the house down. Alien Queen. Excellent. Good choices, I yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, Owen, how about you round us off with your three in a triple bill? Sure, okay. Well, I think you've all said that you, you've picked some kind of abstract um, films. I think mine are probably going to trump those in the abstract stakes, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> the first film I've come for, uh, well, I don't think any of my films have got either kings or queens in. So just bear with me as I go through them. But the first one I chose is uh, King Kong from 1933. I thought I had, to, yeah. I had to choose that. Yeah, brilliant film. Uh, it's uh, it's not dated at all, really. Only in terms of you know the animations, but I still think that's that's charming about it. It's it's a little bit old, Hollywoody, <laughs> you know, monster film, creature feature kind of thing. And it's um, I really like that about it. But it's got good performances. Um, I think Robert Armstrong is in it, and he's he's quite good. Um, Bay Ray as well, um, who I'm going to talk about a little bit later anyway. And it's got great scenery in it as well. It's just a great film, isn't it? A proper action, um, Hollywood beast creature film. And so, I mean, if you don't know the story of it, it's um, a film crew who go to visit an island to shoot. Um, actually, I think it's called Skull Island, which is it leads to one of my favourite Simpsons quotes as well from one of their Halloween episodes. Where they're going to Monkey Island. What's their apes? But they're not as big. I think it's one of the Simpsons Halloween episode quotes. But anyway, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent again. It's so it's a great film. Um, they go to this island to shoot a film and end up discovering a giant gorilla who they decide to take back with them uh, to make a little money from it. You know, obviously, it all goes wrong. The, the big King Kong gorilla escapes. There's a few fights in between. With uh, I think he has a fight with a T-Rex on the island. Um, but no, it's it's great, and I think it's got great performances, and I've got a lot of love for it because it's one of those films that I first saw and I thought, yeah, I really like that. That's just such a brilliant film. Um, I think it's a little bit similar in terms of um, uh, Godzilla, which came a few few years later. But God, Godzilla's just absolutely epic film. But I couldn't include that. I thought, I could, who can I fit in Godzilla into this triple bill? <laughs> I, thought, uh, I have to leave that one out. So I went for King Kong. That's that's my first choice. Um, but nice. it's been remade a few times. I know, I know that Peter Jackson's film was trashed a little bit. Some people either really love it, but there are some people who absolutely hate it. I didn't mind it, actually. I thought, I thought it was quite a good adaptation of that story, um, if a little long. But no, the original's best. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I'll move straight on to my second choice, which is also, I mean, it's getting even more abstract the further I go along now, but I went for King of Kong, the... Um, American documentary about a novice gamer, Steve Weeb, uh, or Steve Weeby, as he keeps getting called, who um, challenges Donkey Kong legend Billy Mitchell to the title of best player at Donkey Kong, the classic arcade machine, um, 
by attempting to smash his uh, his high score record in public. Uh, and there's a lot of drama. That it's, it's a great. It's it's a documentary, but it's such. Um, uh, it's more like a drama almost. It's got a villain to it. It's got a hero. Um, there's lots of twists and turns with the story. A few sad, sad moments there. Views of glorious triumphs from from certain people. Um, it, it, yeah, I mean it's it's not fiction, even though it's it's coming afterwards. You know, a lot of things were either overemphasized with certain characters, or they just completely washed over certain elements to the to the story. Um, but it's great. It's dramatic. It's entertaining, uh, even though. It's just about some people playing video games. I think it's, you know, <laughs> it puts a lot of people off when they, they when you say, oh yeah, but it's this documentary about some people playing Donkey Kong. Um, which, you know, it's fair enough, I think. Some people, that's not going to appeal to them. Uh, but I loved it. I thought it was great. Billy Mitchell follows... is now a, a legend, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> and it follows all the conventions of a sports film, uh, a fictional... Yeah, it follows it does, the same yeah. conventions of Rocky, uh, you know, follow, say, or Karate Kid. You know, it is about an outsider who is uh, who has a natural talent and he's trying yeah. to make his way in the world where there are a load of rules and a load of people determined to stop him achieving his goal, including the bad guy who is apparently the best at the game, but no one actually really sees him play at much these. It's funny. Is he, in fact, at one point, I swear, there's almost like a training montage where they use the music from Karate Kid, you know, you're the best yeah. around. They actually <laughs> use that in there. And um, it, it is a great fun film. But when he is trying to break the record in that arcade, I was genuinely gripped. And I, yeah, there yeah. is there is a human drama at the heart of this film. Abs- no, I, I I love this film. I I've tried to get as many people as possible to watch it. It's a great great documentary. It is, yeah, it's awesome. So I couldn't leave that out. I know it's not really got a king in it. It's not really got a queen. I mean, even the character in the Billy Mitchell is the king of video games. So we'll give that on official. Of, yeah, we'll give it. Uh, okay, brilliant, thanks. <laughs> I love it just because it's not king in the title. Um, okay, well, actually, I've sort of generated a little bit of a theme within a theme as well, because my final choice um, is, although it's not Fay Ray herself, who's the um, who plays Anne in the original King Kong film, mm-hmm. she started something where she was, you probably heard of the term Scream Queen, mm-hmm. where you uh, obviously a strong female character in a film, uh, usually a horror film, um, it is classed as this term. They get bracketed into Scream Queen, so they're these mm-hmm. iconic female characters. So although it's not Fay Ray, she was the first person who that term was invented for for her part in King Kong. But I've gone for my favourite um, Scream Queen, which is Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween. I think she puts in a brilliant performance, and that she's just fantastic and um, very strong female character. She's um, but it's more about Jamie Lee Curtis' performance, I think, rather than the character herself, who, uh, the character's, you know, though she's quite a strong character anyway, and she's, she's quite sort of, um, uh, sexual character. She's really, um, a lot of depth to the character as well, considering she's just the, the main, um, character in a horror, a horror film or a slasher, even. And generally, they don't get much character development. But it's more, like I say, more about Jamie Lee Curtis' performance who um, puts in one of the best lead performances of any horror film, never mind just being a slasher, never mind just being one of the greatest horror films ever in Halloween. Um, in John, it's John Carpenter's classic. But yeah, she's brilliant. So I've gone for a scream queen. And of course, her, her mom um, was also 
a scream queen herself. Yes. Uh, yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, in Psycho, so there's a bit of a family history there, I guess, with um, her, the daughter taking the, the crown from her her own queen, her own mom. So yeah, that's what. No, I, I, that, that's a, a tenuous link, but I'll let you have it <laughs> simply because it's yeah. such a great film. It's the second John Carpenter film we've mentioned today, which always, uh, yeah, that's always going to please me. Um, and no, I think you're right. It's interesting. I've a few people have seen Halloween that I've kind of either introduced to or spoken to them about it, and they've seen it more recently for the first time. And in some of those cases, there's been almost the uh, what I'm going to call from now on the Owen reaction to Star Wars scenario, <laughs> um, where they went, "I've seen all this before." Oh, yeah, it was, and it, I think it really makes it important that sometimes you have got to judge a film by the context in which it was made. You, I, it is really difficult to ignore the historical context, especially of films that are over 10, 15 years old, because I would say, yeah, you have seen it all before, but this is where it came from, and that's what annoys me when people don't see Halloween for the genius that it is, is, guess yeah. what, everything you think is boring and passe, it all came from here, basically. Now, obviously, right. he stole and ripped off a little bit, as all great filmmakers do, but he created the modern slasher horror film with that that film. And yeah. no film since has topped it. So, uh, no, I, I love Halloween. Well, yeah. that's it for Triple Bill. We'll be back after a brief musical interlude with a review of Prometheus. Okay, so the big release we reviewed this week was Prometheus, directed by Ridley Scott and starring the likes of Charlize Theron, um, Guy Pearce, Mike, uh, Michael Fassbender, uh, Idris Elba, and many others. Before we get on to the review, somebody from the podcast went to the world premiere in London. Yeah, I did. Oh my god! Amazing. Um, yeah, it's one of those bucket list type things. Is do you know what? Just go to a world premiere and walk the carpet. That that'd be nice if that ever happened to me in my life. And it did this week. I couldn't believe it. Um, basically, I, I won the tickets. It's not like uh, the podcast has got that much influence yet, but you, you never know in the future. Um, but no, I got I, I won tickets to this, so I was queued up and I could hear all the cheers and I was queued up round like a fence. And I thought they're just going to sneak us in the back door. And then went round the corner and, oh, my God, I've, it was like I'd been spewed up onto the, uh, well, it was actually a blue carpet. A bit disappointing, but, you know, the red carpet. Uh, and there I was on the carpet at the same time as Ridley Scott, Charlize Theron and Guy Pearce. And I basically just went and stood next to Guy Pearce when he was chatting to the media. Uh, I'll put some photos up on failedcritics.com so you get some photos of the event there. Um, it was an absolutely massive cinema. Really weird. Uh it must have been about 500 seats, possibly a 1,000 seats in there, I don't know. Each seat had a, a bar of green and black chocolate and a bottle of water placed on it. Yeah, very nice touch. Ridley Scott introduced the film 10 feet in front of me because I was on the very front row, which obviously in cinema, you know, in watching a film terms, that gave me a neck ache for the rest of the film. But I don't care because I got to be 10 feet from Ridley Scott when he introduced the film, which is brilliant. Uh, and it was great. At the, when the credits come up at the beginning of the film, everyone applauded every single credit that came up, even down to like costume design and stuff like that. It was a really nice atmosphere, mm. which may have flavoured 
my review. We'll we'll wait and see. I don't know. But um, after the film, all the stars kind of shuttled off in their taxis. I thought, oh, they're just off to some party, you know. Uh, and I went to Chinatown uh, for supper with my friend. And a, a bloke there was chatting to us about the film. He said, oh, did you see the film? Uh, he chatted to us and I said, oh, it was really great to see Benedict Wong. He said, oh, Benny Wong, I know him mainly from poker. I was like, oh, okay. And, this guy. and we chatted about the uh, the makeup and the CGI in the film, uh, made a reference to Benjamin Button uh, and said about, you know, and we were talking about this, the old man makeup in Benjamin Button. This guy then said, oh, we've got some tickets to the app party, but we can't make it. You have them. Oh, Oh, okay, brilliant. Uh, and I'm thinking, okay, how do I catch my last train and go to this after party? And I'm weighing that up. And my mate went, you know who that was, don't you? I was, no. And that was Jason Fleming. Oh, okay, because it's ages since I've seen Lockstock. Turns out Jason Fleming was also in Benjamin Button, which is why he had such great knowledge of the CGI and the makeup used for the old man character in Benjamin Button. Um, so I was like, oh, ridiculous. I couldn't believe that. So we made it to the after party, swanned around, got some, uh, got some free cocktails, some really punchy... Uh, passion fruit cocktail. We asked for a beer and, you know, clearly got shown up for the non-industry losers that we are. So we ended up with some kind of passion fruit cocktail. Around. And that's when I saw Benedict Wong. Those of you, you, you might not know the name, but you'll know the face, hopefully. He was uh, one of the stars of 15 Stories High, brilliant sitcom with Sean Locke from about 2001, I think it yeah, was. Fantastic. He was also, yeah, he's in Moon. Uh, he he plays one of the industry guys in Moon. He was also in Father Ted when uh, they did the, the racist Father Ted episode in in that old Chinatown area of Craggy Island and things like that. So I I just I kind of flush with my own enthusiasm and some punchy cocktails. I went up and introduced myself and said, "Oh yeah, yeah, Jason. Fle- I, I, I had dinner with Jason Fleck." <laughs> sat behind me, but I did it with Jay. Yeah, he says hi. He says Benny Wong's a top bloke. He he says hi, and then he um, stayed and chatted to me for ages. And we he was Benedict Wong was saying, "I'm really worried now. I'm actually getting major parts. I'm really worried that um, this old sitcom I did, where I sat around wanking and eating pot noodles, is actually <laughs> going to end up in producers' laps now, and they're going to think, oh no, we can't cast Benny Wong in anything because <laughs> look at <laughs> where he's So um, yeah, basically premieres. Yeah, I could do that a bit more often. So uh, anyone out there listening to this, if you can wangle some more premier invites, any of us would take them. I did when I was in um, America. Was stood, didn't get to the premiere myself. It was stood outside the premiere of uh, the Emma Stone film Easy A. And oh yeah, quite nice to see her up close. But I mean, other than that, it wasn't <laughs> particularly remarkable. Uh, so when Ridley Scott introduced the film did he say anything particularly you know interesting or insightful or well he he didn't say too much because he was saying i know he was quite a humble bloke actually saying look i know you're all here to watch the film you don't want to listen to me talk for ages but he did i think a few points to remember and it was helpful that i had the filmmaker tell me this before i watched it and i always think it would be really nice to either have filmmaker introduce film or do a q a afterwards at any screening that'd be amazing wouldn't it because i've seen a few like that where i've been able to ask questions afterwards and it it helps you enjoy the film so much more but he said it's not a direct prequel okay and he made it really clear that it's not a direct prequel it shares the same dna as the as his film alien okay and we sometimes think of the franchise being ridley uh, yeah he only did one of the alien films so he is he can only really talk about his film also he said and i found this quite interesting he's not really a director (laughs) 
for someone who's made so many films and has directed, it's really interesting. He said he is, he sees himself uh, uh, as kind of more, he works in set design and pictures. He's not a director of actors. He finds that the most difficult part of the job that he does. And so that's why if you speak to actors who've worked with him, he gives them a lot of rain uh, to bring a lot of what they want to tell. Very different to some other directors who will be, you know, like Kubrick made people take, you know, sometimes 60, 70 takes. He had a very specific idea of how that performance should be. Ridley Scott isn't like that. Ridley Scott is interested in how a film looks and you get the impression that he enjoys doing the big, epic, sweeping scenes and he does the intimate uh, characters talking to each other. It's almost like he films those because he knows they need to be in the film, but that's not what he enjoys the most. And I think if you if you knew that before watching a film, that would definitely... Uh, maybe not change your perception of the film, but you would understand where he's coming from as a filmmaker a bit more. Yes, I think I'll come on to the, the prequel thing in spoiler alert. Um, yeah. I, think, I think it's worth, for the people who are listening who haven't seen the film yet, don't go into it expecting Alien. Because yeah. from, from a, what a lot of comments I've seen about the film, that's what people are doing. and. Um, yeah, it's not the same kind of film as Alien. It might well be set in the same universe and share certain things, but it's a completely different type of film to Alien. Yeah, definitely. And uh, unfortunately, that's a little bit the fault of the marketing, because not only is the marketing for the film, for the last six months, been going, uh, Ridley Scott, director of Alien, returns to science fiction. But if I, I've look, gone back and looked at the trailers, and the trailers give a different impression of the film. So if people have been bombarded by these trailers for the last three or four months, in a way, I can understand why they came out thinking, well, that I was expecting something different but from that. Apparently that was deliberate, though, that the trailers were mis- misleading, which seems yeah. to have backfired them on, on them a bit. I think it has backfired a little bit, um, because if you, if you, the thing is, if you get people excited about a new Alien film, because Alien is is a masterpiece and people if you get people even thinking slightly that there's a new alien film and then it isn't an alien film you are go you do run that risk i think which is a shame because well let's go on to the review i suppose <laughs> well yeah i mean from from the trailers i was you know a bit apprehensive about going to see it because you get at the beginning you know, from the director of Alien, Blade Runner and Gladiator, and you think they're all excellent films, but, you know, the last one was a long time ago. Yeah. Robin yeah. Hood wasn't very good. I mean, I've yeah. not seen Kingdom of Heaven. Apparently, Kingdom of Heaven isn't very good, but a director's cut is. Yeah, that's also what I've heard. I've only seen the original Kingdom of Heaven, which bored the crap out mm, of me. But... So, um, yeah, I think Black Hawk Down is the last enjoyable Ridley Scott film I've seen, and Gladiator is the last great Ridley Scott film. Up until yeah, now, it, make, it makes awesome. you, it makes you sort of worry when you see that. It's like, yeah, they're all excellent, but I mean, when when was Gladiator about ten, twelve years ago? So, what, you yeah, know, exactly. What you know, it's a, it's a long barren spell. While he's actually been making, it's not like James Cameron Avatar and hasn't done anything, actually done anything for so long. Mm. It, it's you know he's been doing stuff, but it's not been as good as. But anyway, yeah. it was a really good film, especially if you don't take it as. Of you know, as an alien, basically. Yeah, I think that's the key, isn't it? I mean, if you just go into it expecting a really good sci-fi film, that's what you get. I think if you go into it expecting, oh well, it's going to be, 
this prequel that leads it ties really neatly into the next Alien film, then you you're right, you you're going to be a bit disappointed. I, I, I think it was partly that, and partly people thinking it's going to be the same style wise as Alien, whereas Alien's yeah, more of a kind of right. horror film designed to scare you in in the same kind of way as the thing is. It, uh, mm. This film, Prometheus, isn't that kind of film. No, not at all. Uh, and in a way, um, to go a bit more sci-fi and geeky, and just stick on that prequel thing a l- just a little bit longer. It, you know, it is a bit of a prequel in narrative terms. Like I said, not in stuff. It reminds me of um, the television series Battlestar Galactica, the, the the reboot, and then the prequel to that, Caprica. Okay. Caprica, it, yeah, it is a prequel, and it takes place in the same universe before the the events of Battlestar Galactica, but thematically uh, and stylistically, totally different. And in a way, I think I, I think Prometheus uh, shares a lot more in common than with Blade Runner in some areas than it does with yeah. uh, Alien. Um, so, but you know, apart from the whole prequel thing, imagine you went into it not knowing even it was connected to Alien. Well, it imagine you really... imagine you'd go into it never seeing Alien or heard about Alien. Yeah, exactly. Which... So try try and get into that point of view and go in. The opening scene looks fantastic, and I, even in three D, it looked fantastic. I'm not a fan of three D. I think the three D in the film tails off uh, and is a bit pointless and redundant. But the opening five minutes or so, I thought the three D worked, <laughs> and it helped. Uh, you know that those opening shots in Iceland and then on the Isle of Skye. It's really interesting to um, to see. This is a a film set, you know, hundreds of years in the future. Is it? No, it's not. I, I can't remember now. I'm, I'm struggling with. I think. With I, think, I, think it's, I think it's. it's uh, towards the end of the twenty. I think the main body of the film is set sort of twenty one ninety four. If I remember rightly. I could yeah, be wrong. I, I can't remember um, exactly. Oh, but, no, no, it's 2089, isn't it? 2094. So it's less than 100 years away, to be fair. Um, but it was really great because you just, you know, doesn't matter. It could have been set at any time, those opening scenes. They're just um, really nice scenes of some of the most beautiful places on this planet, which was great because we've never seen that in a in a in an alien film before. We've never seen shots on Earth, so that was new. Um, I think, but, you know, it... Does look fantastic, and all the way through the film looks gorgeous. I mean, I think we should we should we should sort of say how the film kicks off. It's essentially a couple of scientists um, played um, by, by Newman have, Pace and yeah. uh, the other chap. Yeah, the other chap. That I kept I kept thinking was someone. I think I kept thinking he was Tom Hardy, and he definitely wasn't. Yeah, he does look like it, though, doesn't he? Does. he? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Anyway, they Logan Marshall Green. That's they him. kept. They, they found throughout different places and different cultures throughout Earth uh, the same kind of pictogram of of people worshiping basically a large human type figure with a kind of you know same pattern of planets or stars, and they deduced that this was a map and an invitation to go and essentially meet their maker. Uh, so the Wayland Corporation decided to fund this mission to go to this planet and meet their maker. Yeah, and or actually, and and the film actually properly starts off uh, weird, cold open with this weird kind of superhuman Adonis, pale Adonis type figure um, uh, 
just essentially committing suicide via some horrific form. And, and I thought that was a really stunning opening to the film mm. that made you sit up and go, Christ, what? And I, and I think, what was that about kind of thing? And I, I, th- <laughs> I think it, does it, does it imply that him doing that, sacrificing himself, that it, it kick-started human evolution? I yeah, don't, I, I think I, so because he's, when he when he falls into the, hmm. the water, it's, you know, he yeah. becomes like the, his, his DNA falls apart, and then he becomes these yeah. cells that start multiplying. I think well, it's, the whole film's theme is basically around uh, creation and destruction, isn't it? I think yeah. at one yes. point they even explicitly say that. I think the first that first bit, which is magnificent, I have to say, I really I, like um, uh, James. The 3D, it's not really something that I'm into, but I thought it really worked with that scene. The opening, the opening yeah. bit with the. Um, the, the guy who sacrificed himself. I thought it was brilliant. It really looks stunning. Um, but yeah, I think it's about creation, isn't it? So that was set however yeah. many years I mean, it's, ago. It's, yeah. it, it's, I think because we're in danger of spoiling the film too much, we should probably talk about some of the actors' performances because there were some really yeah. good ones. Michael Fassbender was, as ever, fantastic as the android David, who was, you know, had a bit of personality as an android and, and sort of seemed to, I suppose, pity the humans in a way. Yeah, he, yeah, and he was one of the links to the alien universe in a, in, a, in a sense, wasn't he? Because he was an android on board the ship um, with potentially his own um, agenda or an agenda that had been given to him at least. Um, the main characters don't really trust him hugely. But yeah, I haven't heard a single bad word about Fastbender in this film and it is a brilliant performance. Uh, I was chatting to my good friend Jason Fleming about this. Um, where he, he really, really channeled David Bowie in The Man Who Fell to Earth almost as well. There was a lot of the thin white duke about him. And obviously in the film, he is watching and basing a lot of his uh, exterior mannerisms on Lawrence of Arabia, uh, which is, was a really nice touch as well, I thought. Uh, but yeah, he's fantastic. I also do think that uh, Numi Rapace is brilliant in this film. Uh, and I really liked Sean Harris as well, who was one of the um, one of the other crew members who uh, yeah Byfield yeah I, I won't go into too much here, but I thought Sean Harris uh, really really good. My my worries and uh, not small. I just thought at one point there were just too many characters. Um, there was too much going on, and so there are some really good character. There's some really good actors here who don't have much to do. Um, That's right. Mainly Charlize Theron, not too much to do. No, her Idris ca- Elba, very little. Her ca- uh, Guy Pearce. You know. There was the two sort of um, co-pilots, I suppose they were. One played by your yeah. your new best friend. And, Benny Wong. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, and, and the other guy that was, was... They seemed to be... They seemed to be in there as kind of a comic relief. In, yeah. In kind of the same way... Well, not the same way, but in a similar way to... Sort of R two D two and C three PO in style was a comic relief, but they just didn't seem to be used that much. No, no you know, and again, uh, they, they had a kind of buddy element. Yeah, too, they, they were kind. Yeah, the, the sort of but the, they, the, the mates who sort of kept making jokes and taking the mick out yeah. of each other, but they just didn't seem to be used as much as to sort of make it effective. No, and that they also had a link back to this eight shared alien DNA, though, because they reminded me of the grunts um, right at the beginning of Alien, who are demanding uh, extra overtime, extra payment for going investigating this rock that they've received a distress signal for. So again, uh, 
there, it, there was an interesting element of some grunts in space, and uh, and Ridley Scott quite likes the idea of normal people going about normal everyday work in this extraordinary environment. But I think there were too many of them. Mm. There, and there were too there, many. There, there was another one who seemed to be sort of in charge of security, and the only thing you ever see him do is sort of say, he sort of, um, I think, you know, the someone says to him, oh, we're not taking any guns on this on this trip." And he's like, well, yeah. well that's just, just stupid. And that's all he seems to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's I... where the film falls down a little bit, is it's a little bit convoluted, a little bit complicated, maybe tries to do a little bit too much with too many characters, especially in, in the middle section, which if if there is a poor section of this film, I, I wouldn't go so as to say it's poor, but I think the middle section is where the film drags a little bit. Mm. I think sort of with... With these characters, it was so they shouldn't have really bothered introducing them. They should have just had them there, and and they were either you know they they were just sort of red shirts who get killed off essentially. Yeah. Um, but but I admire the ambition of mm. trying to say, look, we've got yeah. You know, a lot of other science fiction films wouldn't have even bothered having a backstory and character for yeah. those characters. They would have just yeah. You know, but I, I admire the ambition. Um, but in a way, this film is slightly hamstrung by the fact that it's only two hours, four minutes long, and that's quite rare mm. for a big epic science fiction blockbuster these days. I was and it expecting seems to be it to be longer. More people trying to push to two and a half hours. Um, Ridley Scott has apparently said there is a lot of stuff he would have liked to put in the film, and in true Ridley Scott style, I imagine we will see a director's cut of this film <laughs> in two or three years which may well answer a lot of the questions or the criticisms that people are currently aiming I, at. I think it could be a lot sooner with a director's cut for this. I mean... Quite possibly. Um, although he's going straight into shooting uh, The Counselor in about four weeks after this, and then he's lining up uh, Blade Runner 2, apparently. So oh. I think I think he could do it sooner, <laughs> but I don't know if his schedule will allow it. He seems to be... and and of, And they are now talking about a sequel to Prometheus as well. But yes, we'll I mean, without, without spoiling that. it, yeah, the maybe, ending maybe doesn't James leave Cameron it. Maybe will do the sequel to this one. Oh, uh, God. Well, we'll leave the review there, but join us for spoiler alert if you've seen the film and want to listen to our more in-depth analysis, I suppose. Failed Critics is produced and hosted by Steve Norman with regular contributions from James Diamond, Jerry McCauley and Owen Hughes. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and the podcast is hosted by Liberated Syndication Podcasting Hosting Services. Further details available at failedcritics.com. Welcome to Spoiler Alert, where we will talk about Prometheus in full. So before we start, if you haven't seen the film and you don't want to know what it's all about, and everything didn't just turn off now. Um, but if you've seen it or you don't mind it being spoiled, then by all means carry on listening. I want to take issue with it being uh, not a direct sequel, uh, prequel. I think that's a load of rubbish, really. <laughs> Even though it come from Ridley Scott himself, it, it was. I mean, the end <laughs> from from the ending alone, it it was. Yeah, I think you could argue it's not a direct prequel in terms of it leads straight into Alien. There no. is clearly still room between the films mm. to fill in some extra. Uh, and I think even, it, I think that's where this talk of a sequel to this it, is coming it, yeah. from. It, it's a prequel in the way that The Phantom Menace is a prequel to A New Hope. 
not yeah. not Revenge of the Sith is a prequel to A New Hope. Yes, exactly. But, I mean, from... they're, they're, it asks a lot more questions. Actually, it, it leaves very few questions really answered. Um, but it sets up it sets up um, new uh, Elizabeth Shaw, new Mirapaid as a a new Ripley. Yeah, um, she's clearly now got yeah. a mission. But interestingly, Ripley never had that drive and mission. Ripley's entire existence has always been about survival. Mm, Ripley, um, Ripley, yeah. Ripley tended to fall into the situation exactly. out, out of out um, of sheer bad luck. Whereas whereas Elizabeth Shaw, you know, the, the trip to find this planet was planned, and what she's doing now after the film's ended, um, going off to yeah. find you know because it turned out the planet was sort of a a military facility, so she's gone off trying to find where these people that created humans and tried to then destroy humans came from, you know, she's, she's planned loosely, obviously, because she hadn't had much time to plan yeah. it, but she's, she's planned her actions. Whereas, whereas yeah. Ripley was just sort of right. Well, I've, you know, the aliens turned up, got to deal with it. Now I've escaped. Oh, there's more of them. Yeah. Yeah. Ripley's was almost like a kind of, uh, Ripley's story was the, the, the scream queen almost, but she was a far stronger character or uh, in a way, but she, yeah, she was, things kept happening to her. Whereas Elizabeth Shaw is making these things happen. So there's a very different character, a very different character arc we've got going there, which I think is very interesting. One, one thing that has annoyed me ever since I got out uh, was, okay. And and maybe one of you two can help me understand this a bit more was about uh, the map, the invitation. Okay. Why? I'm just struggling to work out why these cultures across the earth were pointing to a weapons facility rather than pointing to where their creators came from. Because I'm assuming this is a bit of the plot that I am struggling to put together here was obviously it wasn't an invitation. I don't know. Was it a warning? Don't go here. I'm not sure because we don't seem to have the humans on earth can't have known what was there. So it can't be a warning. Um, but I just, well, yeah, but I can't. That's, I'm, that's I'm confused. Well. By that. How, how, do, how do they know that, that that place exists in the first place? I mean, you get well, the, the yeah. original guy who um, kind of almost disintegrates himself to create life on Earth. Uh, yeah. Hence, you know, the DNA being shared between everybody but, and, and these alien things it, as well. But it implies but, that. But it doesn't, it doesn't seem to leave a message anywhere. So, how do these I civilizations, mean, these ancient civilizations, know that this star pattern exists? It, 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 it implies to me that the, the aliens had contact with human civilizations throughout human history. Um, yeah. as as people who created humans and that's how yeah. they that's how, that's how yeah. that's how they guided them and that's how they've left stories and and things and sort of um whatever for, for the map but why they put it to a weapons facility rather than their actual home yeah. planet i don't know i mean maybe it's meant <laughs> to be you know because you were the were the aliens planning on coming back to earth and then it all went wrong for themselves on you know yeah. on this weapons facility, or were they intending to send humans there to pick up a virus or the illness or whatever it was to take back to Earth? Yeah, it's definitely very very open um, as to what that's about, uh, and sometimes that's done on purpose, and sometimes it's done because they haven't really come up with a, a, a reason. Because I, I, I really like, I really liked it from watching the trailers. I really liked that setup 
of look, they're all pointing to the same place. Um, mm -hmm. And if it was, and if it was the engineer's homeland, that to me would have made sense. You could have made that's a really good, you know, argument there because they have been guiding us. You know, you, you, there's the whole thing where they talk about um, arguing against centuries of uh, Darwin. Uh, and basically arguing that there isn't such the evolution has been caused by the engineers who have evolved us kind of thing. Mm. So you can, I could get that if it was going to there, but when it turned out that it wasn't an invitation and, uh, and that was scary, but it didn't make sense with the beginning of the film to me. No. Um, the other thing that really, really kind of wound me up after, once the film had finished was why, why did they have Guy Pearce play Wayland? Um, hmm. If they're only going to show him in slightly shabby-looking old man makeup, um, I, this that that really bugged me. Why not just a just get an old man? Um, <laughs> yeah, because because we didn't see him as a young. Now the only thing I can think of is that maybe there was some more scenes left on the cutting room floor of a younger Wayland that we've not seen, and obviously there was the viral video of Guy Pearce's Wayland. Uh, in 2023, giving a, a TED lecture. Um, so, that, you know, there are some reasons, but in the film, if you came to the film without seeing much of the marketing, you would say, why was Guy Pearce in old man makeup? Um, because that, it, it just felt... Old man makeup never works, in my opinion. Um, it's really difficult to pull off uh, without you going... I was sat there going that's Guy Pearce and that looks a bit weird and it put me off. Um, and then there was the whole, uh, the fact that he was um, Charlie Theron's character's father, which really didn't feel like much of a reveal at all. And it, no, didn't, it didn't was, seem... It that didn't, was really poorly made. It didn't, it, that, that reveal was just nothing, was it? It didn't seem, yeah. to, it didn't seem to work. It just didn't seem, you know, that it didn't... Because obviously yeah. obviously the, the, the thing was that... that David, the android played by Michael Fassbender, was yeah. was as as Waylon said himself, more of a son or more of a child to him yeah. than he's ever had. And it reveals that Charlize Theron's character, uh, Wickers or Vickers, whichever it was, yeah. is his daughter. I mean, she just I don't I didn't think her character was particularly brilliant or offered a lot anyway. And and, the, and from quite early on, I thought she was going to be the the reveal was she was going to be an android as well. Um, because yeah, she, it, she seemed to be quite happy she to. She was very cold. Wasn't yeah, she, she was very cold. Yeah. Seemed quite happy to make decisions that humans might not make because you know they're hard decisions. They involve emotion and that. And she was quite. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, she, it was. But, um, and when Idris Elba said to me, said to her, "Are you, are you an android? Are you a robot?" And, and yeah. then, then I thought it's going to, you know, it's, it. I was right, and I wasn't obviously, but you know, it just <laughs> it, it didn't it didn't seem to her character just didn't seem to work. No, and maybe that's because, again, uh, maybe a lot of stuff got left on the cutting room floor. Maybe it's just not been put quite together properly in the edit. Mm. Um, the, the reason we didn't care about the reveal is because we didn't care about the characters. And maybe it's because, maybe and um, it's because we haven't spent enough time with them. Um, or maybe it was just badly written. I don't know. I find it difficult that, I find it difficult to believe it would just be a, solely a case of bad writing. I think that there is stuff somewhere on the cutting room floor which would have made that make a bit more sense. I don't know. Well, maybe wasn't I'm just the screenplay being written. Wasn't the screenplay written for this or co-written by um, the uh, the guy from Lost? What's his name? Yeah. Uh, yeah oh, God, uh, it was, wasn't uh, it? David yeah. Lindelof. Yeah. Who, 
Yeah, so I mean, I can if there, if there are holes in it, I can probably understand uh, that's where they've come from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's very lost. It's just um, all the plot holes. Yeah. yeah. It, uh, was, was there anything else that you felt? didn't because I've, I've got some I want to I, end on some positives I'm, I'm still I'm, yeah I, I, I'm, I'm still a bit unsure as to why Wayland wanted um you know the the character to be um you know the main guy I keep forgetting his name to be poisoned and for her to be impregnated with sort of this alien well you know impregnated with an alien creature yeah I, I, my reading of it was Wayland wants immortality. Wayland doesn't want to die. And he thinks that whatever is going on here can somehow be used to provide eternal life. And uh, and and he's therefore quite willing to experiment on the people on the ship to see if... The, that That's my reading of it. It might be the wrong reading. You guys might have a different reading of it. Uh, that, that was essentially what I thought as well. Um, you know, testing the thing on him just to see what would happen. Almost a, a litmus test, wasn't it? Rather than any plot-driven reason to do it, um, I think it was just uh, look. This is this this stuff that's on this alien planet. We'll pull it in this bloke, and then you can see what happens to people. And also with with David the android, I didn't quite understand why at the end of the film, after sort of showing his his contempt towards humans and you know not really getting on with them, why he seemed so desperate to help Elizabeth at the end. Well, not desperate, but sort of changed his whole mindset of yeah. things and sort of just said, well, I can pilot this ship, so there's loads more of them. And- yeah, my understand again, my reading of that was A, he, um, more than, he wants to, he has kind of achieved a sense of life more than anything. And this kind of goes into Blade Runner a little bit. Because um, if you, you know, the end of Blade Runner um, is about an android uh, basically valuing any any life he has he has discovered the the value of life and he values any life let alone his own um and that's why he he again spoil it oh, you must have seen blade runner people that's why he saves deckard at the end okay um <laughs> in this case yeah. um i think he has discovered that maybe there is something more important than he never meant for this crew to die he was just carrying out some orders he's got no orders left now um and I think he wants to survive himself. I think he's discovered that actually he wants to survive. And then you've also got the fact that clearly Fassbender is brilliant in this and the studios want him back for any potential sequel as well. Um, so I also think there has kind of been a commercial reason why they have uh, saved the android. And, and so I think that's taken over a bit of the plot there a little bit as well. One fine... I don't know what you guys thought. Um, no, I'd agree with that. I think, it, I mean, it seems quite cynical to say that, doesn't it? That it, it, it was just a commercial thing almost to, to keep him around for any potential sequel. But that's the impression you get, isn't it? If it was, if, yeah. he should have, his character should have died in that room with um, yeah. uh, Guy Pierce's guy. But yeah, I felt a little bit cynical when I, when it popped into my mind as well that oh, perhaps they're just trying to, trying to keep him around. But yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely agree. But also <laughs> at the same time, you but... need a way to get you need a way to get Numi Rapace off that planet as well. And he was the last kind of real. He was the last believable. If you believe that he could change his mind, then it's believable that he could pilot the ship uh, and and take her where she wants to go. Whereas if he dies, 
you've got to believe that they're either she can work out how to fire ship or there's some kind of like automatic homing beacon or something like, you know, you've got to come up with maybe a, a slightly less believable way that she can continue the story forward as well. Mm. So I think it was, I think for the story to move on from this film, he had to survive and make that decision. But, you know, we can argue for days over whether or not that's a believable decision that he makes, I suppose. Just one other thing that, that didn't make sense was that, Obviously, we there was a thing made of this, you know, um, surgical health pod thing mm. in Charlie, you know, in Vickers Charlie's Veron's character's room. Yet, when um, Elizabeth Shaw gets into it to have the the thing removed, it's only- hi. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Only calibrated for men. Yeah, that, that was... That just doesn't... That's well, just... I think... I think that ties in with um, Wayland, isn't it? Because the whole point is that Wayland was going to be the one who, you know, survives. He's going to be the person who goes back in that pod. So even though that um, Theron's character is um, sort of occupying you know, that space, yeah. I think it's, it's supposed to be that it'll be Wayland who's the guy who goes back in that pod. That's what it is. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, it's, yeah. not, it's not specifically explained, but that's the... Um, impression that, that's a it. really good reading of it i hadn't picked up on steve's problem with that but luckily uh i think owen solved it for me already before i've had to, <laughs> to worry about that that's quite good yeah. but talking about that um that scene actually i thought the scene where elizabeth is trying is having that um foreign body removed from her in that pot that was that was as close to alien really apart from maybe the very end of the film um, that you're going to get. And I think that was, that really shared the alien film DNA. Uh, it was, it was this film's chest burster scene, wasn't it really? It looked fantastic and it genuinely creeped me out. And I was kind of gripping the edge of my seat as that whole scene played out. Wow. Um, that was fantastic filmmaking. Even though we did have a chest burster scene right at the end as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but at that moment, I was thinking, ah, that's the chestburster scene. Yeah, that was, uh, I thought that scene looked great. And the other bit as well, again, the alien DNA. And it's a real shame Jerry's not here because that bit where the two <laughs> yeah. guys, uh, uh, and there's the kind of black gooey stream. And then what is essentially a penis just appears yeah. out of the, and it yeah. was just the most phallic thing. And then, it, you know, Jerry were really happy because there was some proper homosexual deep throating rape going on. <laughs> it, was, it was it was as blatant as Alien has ever been in terms of um I think it was uh, did Dan O'Bannon write the original Alien I think he did about uh wanting to physically rape the men in the audience. Um that's what that scene did again. It was it was more blatant than it ever was. But again I like that. It was it was a nice touch and a not. It was saying, look, we're continuing this theme from Alien as well. So, uh, yeah, they were some good scenes. Mm. I didn't like Rave Overall, Spall getting killed off. I just really like him from Hot Fuzz, and I didn't like him getting killed off that yes. early or at all. No, no, and uh, yeah, and I, I was a bit, I was a bit sad that, like you say, some of the characters seem to just 
sacrifice themselves. They, it was almost like they were there purely to sacrifice themselves. Mm. Idris Elba did basically nothing the entire so, film apart from look cool and then... Shag Charlize her on and then, and then save everyone. Yeah, and then, like, uh, yeah, and I, even I, then I, he didn't do a I, very good job of it. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, I, but I quite liked his character, though. I mean, he wasn't on screen much, and I thought yeah. he did have a bit of a, you know, of all the characters, or, well, all the supporting characters, if you like, his was one of the ones that actually had a bit of development in it. I mean, um, uh, you talked about, um, what's his name, Sean Harris, mm. earlier on, who was a great character to watch on screen, yeah. but he didn't develop much. Like no. yourself, though, I thought did. I thought he became this character who was there just as the, the captain of the ship, and then he had a change of heart, and yeah, I mean, maybe it was a little flimsily done. No, no, I quite like. I thought it's nice to see Idris Elba in a big film as well. Anyway, yeah. cause I, I, I yeah. quite like him from Luther and, uh, of course, The Wire. Yeah, yeah, no, and he he did. He had a presence about him, even. He did. He wasn't there a lot, but when he was on screen, you you enjoyed watching him, which was great. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I, overall, I'd say it, it's it's an intelligent science fiction film, which we don't get many of these days. Uh, and I, the thing is, I I know people who will tell me that uh, Inception is massively overrated, and there's loads of plot holes in it. And oh god, how can you think that film's great? You know, sod you. Uh, it is, <laughs> uh, uh, and it's the same with this. I. I think there's been some really sniffy reviews out there. And so, uh, and I'm not saying everyone, but I think there's some reviewers out there who have been prepared to say this film was massively overhyped and was always going to disappoint and everything like that. I think some people took an agenda in that. Maybe I took an agenda into this film, considering, you know, I was hobnobbing with Charlize Ridley and everyone, um, that I was going to like this film, whatever. Maybe, yeah, I can't say for certain. But the fact is, I think... Good science fiction films should leave you asking questions. We'll have people debating uh, some some true intentions of the filmmaker afterwards. It shouldn't tie up everything. Um, it looked fantastic, which is a big part of a an in, mm-hmm. of a good science fiction block. But it looked fantastic. Um, great. There was some great set piece action. Uh, there were some great performances. It's not a masterpiece. Uh, it's not Alien. It's possibly not. It's, po- it's probably not even Aliens. But it's a lot better than Alien 3. Uh, and it's a lot better than most science fiction films that will come out this year and in the last few years as well. That's my kind of final opinion on it. I mean, it, does, yeah. it, did, it did have the potential to be great, though. That's what seems to be a little bit annoying, even though I enjoyed it. It did, it did have the sort of... You could see the bits there necessary yeah. to make it, it I mean, it, a great... it got spoiled at times, didn't it? I mean, the, the bit with the... Um... Well, I suppose, it, I, you know, I, I appreciate the little bit of, with, um, with, like, zombie-like character in it. You know, mm. it's a bit of a zombie yes. reference. <laughs> but, you know, the, when he was sort of bent over outside of the ship, that was quite creepy. And then yeah. it turned into just this, you know, action-y bit, which wasn't so good. But I thought, you know, the film, up to that point, it was really subtly developing things. Um, yeah. You know, the plot was moving on. To, and then just to put that in, felt almost like they've gone, oh, wait a minute, this might be boring some people. We'll put a bit of action in, we'll put a little yeah. zombie creature in and it'll liven things up. And actually it had the opposite effect of just <clears throat> taking the film off in a weird direction. Yeah. I think in, in true Ridley Scott fashion, because uh, someone pointed out, it might have been one of you two, actually, I can't remember. Someone pointed out to me this week, um, it might have been Jerry in his absence, um, <laughs> Alien and Blade Runner were both 
quite, you know, had very mixed critical receptions on release and yeah. now are seen by anyone who is sane as being uh, absolute science fiction masterpieces. Um, but again, with Blade Runner, the original theatrical release of Blade Runner is quite mixed and muddled and it is the director's cut which pulls things together. I don't, I know I shouldn't be making excuses, but I honestly think that if and when a director's cut of this film appears, I think that is the moment to truly judge it because I really think that if anything, the problem with this film is that a few, some things have been left out which may well have answered a lot of our questions and hopefully Ridley will put them back in. And it seems to be his MO. He seems to get a film out for the studios to please the studios and then goes off and tinkers with it for a few years and then comes back and go, actually, this is what I wanted. Um, and unlike some filmmakers, George Lucas, for example, I think he usually does improve his films by doing that rather than sullying the memory of them. Well, I think, yeah, I think that's fair enough. I, I mean, I, I would I would be very interested to see a different cut of this film because um, I think we're all in agreement, although we've you know, criticised certain parts of it, I think we're all in agreement that we really enjoyed watching the film. Yeah. And uh, to see something that comes out with um, tying up a, a few loose ends maybe or getting rid of certain parts of the film that didn't quite fit, it would be really interesting to see that. I, I, mm-hmm. I would definitely um, like to see that cut of the film. I think that's as good a place to leave it as any. So before we finish up, James, just want to tell everyone where they can find everything again. Yeah, so remember, we have a new webpage. It is, nice and easy to remember, failedcritics.com. Uh, it's the home of our podcast, home of some regular articles, and we'd love you to kind of contact us and give us, you know, write some articles for us, give us some pitches for articles. Uh, we've got a new Twitter at Failed Critics, but you can still contact me at at The Failed Critic. Uh, and obviously our Facebook, which is facebook.com slash Failed Critic. Star Wars. I did watch a George... Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I watched the THX1138, um, which is um, his first film, George Lucas's first film, the first feature-length film, I think based on a, a short story that he made, and it's set in a, a sort of dystopian future. And um, there are people who are controlled through drugs. They're all sedated and, and they're drone-like workers. And, but the main characters in this film, the focus is on a couple of people who make the uh, robot poop that uh, enforce the law in their world. But I was just really, really, really bored watching it. Um, it was just so dumb. I'm not, I'm not normally one to criticise a film for not having much... Uh, going for it, you know, I've watched Solaris and quite enjoyed Solaris, you know, I've watched 2001 Space Odyssey, as Jerry mentioned, uh, sorry, Steve mentioned last week, and I really love that, and that's got a kind of slow pace to it as well. But this was just so boring. A, a lot of people think it's um, visionary, but uh, for me, it, it, I didn't think that at all. It was just, um, <laughs> there, there wasn't much for it that, that it was trying to say, Um and it was saying it really badly. <laughs> there were a few nice little touches, I guess. Okay, so there's one bit where they're talking about the economics of the world that they're in. Uh, and you just get little snippets of conversations from other characters in the background. And they're interesting to hear. You know, there's a lot of creativity that's gone into it. I can appreciate that from, from George Lucas' point. But it, it's not really it's not really worth discussing almost because it's just... I just didn't like it, basically. I just would not recommend that film and I'm not going to watch it again. 
<laughs> I've not seen it, uh, Owen, but I heard this week that George Lucas has apparently retired from making big budget blockbuster films uh, and he wants to go to his garage and start making homemade films. I'm assuming he means like this. Um, does that mean that he's going to make worse films than the Star Wars prequels from now on? Is that is that the impression you would get? There is some quite sort of uh, fancy. In fact, there's a, a bit towards the end where there's this car chase, which is it reminded me a little bit of um, you know in uh, Batman Begins, where he's driving mm. through the streets in the, the fast car. It's, it reminded me a lot of that actually, and it was actually quite entertaining to watch. Uh, but you know, it's not so low budget that he's going to be able to make that in his garage, really. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was my bad film for the week. And, um, yes, Jerry, what have, um, uh, James, sorry, what have you been watching this week? Oh, we miss Jerry already, don't <laughs> we, bless? Um, yeah, um, I've actually watched three brilliant films this week. I've not watched a bad film, so I'm really happy. Uh, I'm gonna, a couple of them I've rewatched, and a lot of people have seen them, so I'll quickly talk about those. First one is They Live, directed by John Carpenter from 1988. <laughs> yeah, oh, I love that. I, I'm a big John Carpenter fan anyway. They live, if you haven't seen it, basically a drifter played by, at the time, the WWF wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper discovers a pair of sunglasses that allow him to wake up to the fact that aliens have taken over the Earth. And they're basically subjugating mankind with subliminal messaging, um, all the billboards which advertise fancy perfumes and clothes. Actually, they're saying to us, obey consume sleep and things like that and loads of the people on earth are actually aliens and these sunglasses help you see those um apparently piper was cast after carpenter watched him on wrestlemania oh, which i think is a brilliant yeah he's just watching the rest yeah he's who i need for my which is why i love john carpenter he does work outside of mainstream hollywood thinking which is great but the thing is it's actually a really good performance from piper or uh rowdy roddy piper uh, as he was uh, back then. He, I think it's a really good... And I, I think he has gone on to do some terrible straight-to-video stuff after this. This is the only kind of, like, semi-big film he ever did. I, I think it's a bit of a shame, because he has got some charisma in this film. And there's a brilliant fight scene in it. Uh, about two-thirds of the way through, uh, Piper and Keith David, they did a fight scene. Now, it was scripted as only meant to last uh, 30 seconds. But apparently unbeknownst to Carpenter, they practiced it for three weeks and came up with over five minutes worth of a fight. And Carpenter liked it so much, he stuck it in the film. And um, anyone who's seen the Cripple Fight episode of South Park, that fight scene there is a blow-for-blow reshot of the fight from They Live, which I think is brilliant as well. But yeah, They Live, absolutely fantastic, great fun, silly, um, but at the same time, plenty of good action. I highly recommend it. Um, next film I saw well, I rewatched The Usual Suspects this week um, 1995 Brian Singer directed I'm mentioning this because I'm kind of I'm going through the IMDb Top 250 at the moment and I'm also re-watching the ones I'd seen before this is one I'd seen before and do you know what it's still as fantastic as when I first saw it uh, when I was 16, 17 it, um, and also what it made me think it could be in so many triple 
multiple bills that I've already got planned for later on in this run. So I'm not going to talk about it too much because it's clearly going to show up in one of my triple bills. But this was a debut film from director Brian Singer. This is one of the finest ensemble casts I've ever seen. You've got some really, you've got people like um, Benicio del Toro, Kevin Spacey, obviously, Chaz Palamantari, uh, Gabriel Byrne, uh, Stephen Baldwin, Pete Postlethwaite. It's packed with really great performances. And do you know what? Hour and 40 minutes, nice and punchy. There's not a second of screen time wasted. Absolutely love Usual Suspects. One of my one of my 10 out of 10 films, that is. And then finally, and I'm so sad Jerry's not here. This week I watched Pan's Labyrinth. Um, finally, got round to opening the cellophane. <laughs> 2006, uh, Guillermo del Toro direct. Um, we've spoken about it on two podcasts. Uh, Jerry's already talked about it on two podcasts already. So I'm not going to tell you too much about the film because most people have either seen it or hopefully listened to the podcast who's listening to this. Um, but wow, why, why did I put that off so long? What a fantastic film. Um, you know, in, in the fascist Spain, 1944, bookish young stepdaughter of a sadistic army officer escapes into an eerie but captivating fantasy world. That's the IMDb summary, and it doesn't even begin to explain how amazing this film is. All I want to say about it, though, is there are a couple of ways you can read this film, and especially the end of the film. Um, and the way I read it was that it is a beautiful film, but it is one of the bleakest stories I have ever seen. That is one interpretation of it. I'd, I'd like to speak to other people who have maybe taken in another interpretation from it, but my God, it's bleak. Uh, and about three quarters of the way through the film, I'm thinking, God, they're really dragging me down to the depths here before hopefully going to give me uh, a beautiful, heartwarming payoff. In my eyes, they didn't, but the film works because... I still loved the payoff. So um, there's my three films. Three absolutely brilliant films. I recommend you go and see all of them this week. Well, I only managed to watch one film this week. It was... I don't... Actually, I can't say it was good or bad. I can't decide whether it was good or bad. It was Iron Sky. Yes! Which which James reviewed last week. Storytelling... <clears throat> well, a story about the Nazis who escaped to the moon after 1945, and then they decide to come back and try and take over the world. And I just can't tell whether it was good or bad. It wasn't. It wasn't. Somebody. Somebody said, "Was that because it was so bad? It was good." It's not that. I can't decide whether I watched a film that. The, the, the plot didn't really work because they were trying to put in too many messages and to, and trying to parody something or take the mick out of something that didn't really work, or if they weren't trying to do that at all and it was just a, a, a amusing and entertaining film about Nazis from the moon trying to take over the Earth in about six years' time. So, yeah, no, having, I, having I know exactly not- what you mean. Part part of me thinks part of one part of me thinks sort of I keep changing my mind. Part of me thinks oh, they were trying to throw in too many messages about um, sort of you know when the two the two Nazis the the man and the woman I forget their names they end up getting hired briefly by the American president because she doesn't really realise who they are and sort of doing their campaigns and sort of saying that you know some modern day democracies are like Nazism and. You know, there's, there's, you could say there's a message about race in there as well, and all these other things, and that, um, 
that the say the president of America leaders now are more interested in winning votes through being popular rather than and running a country properly. You could say all those messages are there and it doesn't really work. Or you could just think none of that's actually there. It's just a really entertaining film where some Nazis come from the moon, um, there's some funny bits and you know, some stuff blows up. So I, mean, I just don't know I still can't decide what to make of it. I I I agree. I think there are because because there are some brilliant bits yeah. and there are some terrible bits and you mm. very rarely get a film which has some great highs and some great lows. Usually films either fall in the middle or are great or are bad, you know, with one or two bad points or good points. But no, this veers from brilliant to terrible at a regular interval. Um, and the fact, you know, the American president's performance I thought was terrible. I thought she was a terrible actress. She had some terrible hammy lines. Um, but the performance by the the main kind of the Nazi teacher, the the, the naive Nazi, is a fantastic cinematic performance. It's brilliant acting, uh, brilliant especially when, uh, written. Well, at first when basically on the moon, the school kids see a 10-minute clip of the great dictator which is which is used as propaganda, yeah. but as far as she knows, as a teacher, that's all there is as well. And then she goes and sees yeah. the full sort of hour and a half version when she when she lands in America in some cinema, and she just comes out and can't believe it. And it's sort of yeah, you know, I, but she is the heart of the film. Hmm. Yeah, I did. I didn't like the, um, the, but... the, the 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 I didn't like the guy who played the astronaut, uh, the American astronaut. I don't know why. <laughs> I, love, I, I actually gen- at some points weirdly this is going to sound really weird when he okay basically i'm not really spoiling too much here because it was in a lot of the pre-press stuff and it happens about 20 minutes into the film black astronaut gets turned into a white man by the nazis on the moon okay <laughs> happened weirdly when he was white he really reminded me of danny glover i've no idea why as a black man he didn't but as a white man a black man turned white reminded me of Danny Glover. And I, I kept watching him. I was watching him as a whited up Danny Glover. And and his entertainment, uh, his performance entertained there, me in that there, sense. There I don't one, know what that says about there me. Was one character, I don't know what that says about race. <laughs> there, there was one character that I thought was underused, which was, um, I can't remember the actual job title, but the guy who was playing the American president's sort of military advisor. I thought a couple yeah. of lines that he had were actually really good, and he was actually quite good. And I think he was a bit underused, yeah. and and I did like the yeah. bit. Th- oh, sorry, go there on. There were some great scenes. I thought yeah. um, the CGI was decent. Mm. And it was better than a lot of films that cost a lot more to make that I've seen recently. And um, I, I I did like the kind of United Nations uh, scenes towards the end. I yeah. thought that was when the American president was at her best as well yeah. as in those well, it UN was, scenes. It was with um, there was a few nice jokes there. With, with it was it Finland was the only country that didn't arm their their spaceship. Yeah, and yeah. things like that. There was, a, there was a nice joke about Finland. There was a nice kind of whole thing about uh, international politics and stuff there. Mm. And that bit reminded me a little bit of Doctor Strangelove. You know, and it wasn't that bad a, bad a comparison. It, it is nowhere near being as brilliant um, as Doctor Strangelove. Um, because... But it, if you use a film like that as your influence, then you're, you know, you've started off on the right foot at least. I think, one of, just because I'm immature, one of the funniest lines for me was... When all the sort of spaceships from different countries were were signing off when they were, they were flying into battle, and the Australian ship was called something like Spaceship Dundee. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there is some 
there's some really cheap pop culture references. There's some very intelligent ones. You know, they are using the dictator and Doctor Strangelove as their influences, and that to me that's a good start, and it shows some. Um, it shows some cinematic taste from the filmmakers, but, think, but at the same time, there is just some really like terrible stuff as well. But it was fun, and I think if you go along with it for the ride, you. But obviously, Steve is still really confused. But I think I need to speak to the, the writer and the director and find out what if they say to me, "No, we weren't trying to put across any messages or parody anything. We just made it a bit of a silly film that was meant to be quite entertaining." Then I'll like it. If they try and say. Oh yeah, there was all these hidden messages in it about you know society and the way things are and democracy and I've been like, no, I don't like it. So I've, I need to speak to them really. <laughs> if you're listening, just sort of email me and, and we'll sort yeah, that out. Yeah, we'll see if we can yeah. we'll see if we can yeah. fix that up for you. Uh, anyway, we best end part one here, and in part two we'll be back with Triple Bill. Welcome to part two of Failed Critics, the part we like to call Triple Bill, where we pick three films um, from a certain subject or topic. This week, as we said at the start of the show, with it being the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, 60 years for her on the throne, we are picking films with kings and queens in them, a royal theme. I'm going to kick us off with my three. Um, and they get progressively more abstract and linear from the theme as we go along. I'll start with one of the Lord of the Rings films. I'm going to go for Two Towers. The Two Towers. Good film. Okay. Interesting Which, what's your king, then? Well, <laughs> or or uh, queen? Well, Aragorn is the king of Gondor in exile. And I think The yeah. Two Towers is the film in the trilogy where he really starts to take on the mantle... Obviously, he doesn't become king until the final film properly. He's the king in exile, but he doesn't become the king until the final film. I think right towards the end of Fellowship of the Rings, when Boromir sort of tells him that he would follow him as a king, that's sort of when it starts. But in The Two Towers, you really start to see him become, you know, the, the leader or a king, you know, um, especially at the beginning with the absence of um, Gandalf. So I think. It's also uh, it's, it's a good film. It's also my favourite film of the trilogy. Yeah, it's that whole middle. Sorry, I was just going to say it's that whole middle one of the trilogy that's always a bit darker and sets it up for the final one. Quite often, you get some of the uh, the better or yeah, at least the darker storylines in that middle one. And uh, no, I, I like Two Towers. Um, I think my fa- my favourite probably is still Fellowship of the Ring, actually. But uh, I, I think Two Towers is a great film. Mm. So yeah, that's that's my first film of the three. My second one, The Lion King. Yeah, oh, that was nearly on my list. It's so nearly on my list. I mean, obviously, Mufasa, Simba's father, is king of the jungle, as a lion always is. And then you have to tell the story of how Simba takes his rightful place as king of the jungle after being, well, after his father was killed and he was sent away in supposed disgrace by his uncle Scar. Um, it's probably one of Disney's best films, if not the best they've done. Uh, it's got a brilliant soundtrack, brilliant plot, some really funny moments, an excellent cast. 
No, I yeah, love it's really nicely animated as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's that proper old school animation that you just don't see much anymore. Um, and obviously, you know, it's it's essentially Hamlet with animals. So, you know, you've got, yeah. you've got a classic story being told beautifully, yeah. And I mean, with the animation, while stuff like Toy Story and Monsters, Inc. looks fantastic, this, you know, th- this kind of animation sort of doesn't happen now. Just normal, well, I say normal, but, you know, non-computer generated yeah. animation. Yeah, I don't I don't know if any of you have either seen the um uh the recent Blu-ray edition of it because uh, they they've updated the picture quality and it. it's yeah. just fantastic to look at. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and you think that there's that, one point in it where, the... where they Sorry, carry on. <laughs> no, go 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 Owen. <laughs> oh, well, I was just going to say there's one point in um, the film where all the I think it's near the beginning where all the animals are just sort of Running around, singing, dancing, and there's um, a rhino that sits on something, or something that sits on the rhino, or something like that. I can't really remember it exactly. But there's, there's a point that we were watching it. I was watching it with my wife, and she says, "I always wondered what that bit was that he sat on because I couldn't see it quite clearly on the old VHS that she had when she was younger." And then you see it in the Blu-ray, and it's just exactly. I mean, it's just brilliant. It's, it's amazing. Um, in fact, I think it's probably the best film I've seen on Blu-ray being updated to this new format. I think it looks just so crisp and, and fantastic. You're right, it looks stunning. And I remember yeah. a re- when it first came out, that first section actually didn't look great. It looked a bit rough and ready in places. That mm. that opening circle of life, uh, song and dance yeah. type bit. The rest of the film looked great. That bit didn't look brilliant. But on Blu-ray, it looks so much better. Uh, and you're right. It's, you and I think the reason we don't have films like that now is because it's... You know, you think how many people had to hand it... I think, didn't it take four or five years to actually make The Lion King? Uh, and studios can't afford that uh, investment in people and time these days when they can do it on computer and get and get a film knocked out in one or two years. And I think that's one of the main reasons that we don't see that anymore is because computers have just made made that a little bit redundant and a bad business model, which is a shame because they do look fantastic. Yeah, I'm just trying to think what the last big film in that style was. I mean, I suppose Lilo and Stitch is quite big when that came out, and that. Mm-hmm. But there haven't really been many of the sort of Disney's 2D flat drawing uh, animated no, films think, since then, have they? Pixar just changed the game; they moved the goalposts. I think yeah. Hercules was like that, and After Lion King as well, I think. Um, but mm. there, there was a Tarzan, but none of them have been as big as Lion King. And yeah, I think. I think Pixar have just changed animation completely. Yeah, you could argue for the better, but I do think we're missing out on some some great... I, I think you're more likely to see that kind of animation now from a, a foreign language studio. Yeah, I think so. Sorry, Steve, we've we, we hijacked Anyway, yes, and Timon and Pumba are brilliant, so... And, yes, and, al- oh, yeah. and always will be. Final film of my triple bill. Here's where I'm going to annoy some people, but you'll probably see where I'm going straight away. The Great Escape. Oh yeah, I get it. Yeah, I like <laughs> yeah. it. Like Steve it. McQueen. Yeah. I was struggling yeah. to think of films I'd actually, you know <laughs> that I liked with kings and queens in, um, but I went I went literal uh, linear and abstract after James gave me permission to. And I went with Steve McQueen in The Great Escape, which is one of my favourite films ever. It's just 
brilliant. Everything about it is brilliant. I mean, yeah, the Cooler King. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, uh, so that is a really good choice, actually, Steve, because yeah. it is a great film, and no one. It, it, that's one of those characters where now you think no one else but Steve McQueen could have played that character. Mm. And it's really great because Eddie Izzard talk does a great routine about the Great Escape, uh, Great Escape in one of his old routines, and it's basically. Um, Steve McQueen escapes and disguises him. Or everyone else like goes to massive lengths to disguise themselves uh, to do this escape. And Steve McQueen disguises himself as an American man. Uh, <laughs> and I, I love the fact that he's just like, sod it, I'm going to get on a motorbike and drive what must be at least a thousand miles in real life just to get to free. I, I, do you know, he is so damn cool in that film. Great choice, Steve. I mean, obviously, for people who don't know, it tells a story of a bunch of POWs in a German POW camp in World War Two who make a plan to escape pretty much everybody. And the only film that, thing that annoys me with the film is the title because I think only three people actually escape. Yeah, a, a lot just a, a, a lot just get lined up. A, a lot just get lined up and shot. Yeah. Do you know what? I don't think it's possible to spoil a film that's been out that long. If you haven't seen The Great Escape yet, it's your own fault if we've just spoiled the end for you. But yeah. And do you know what really annoys me? Again, it's all the British that get lined up and shot. (laughs) Steve McQueen just gets sent back to his prison cell to play with his baseball again. It's hard. But the cast as well for that film. I mean, there's there's a few films with great ensemble cast, and this is one of them. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure I'm, yeah. I'm sure you could just list, you know, Steve McQueen, James Garner, Richard Attenborough, Charles Bronson, James Coburn. Yeah, it, it's a it's, it's a proper who's who of Hollywood yeah. at the time. It's uh, and and again, you don't see many films like that these days anymore, where they manage to put together not just a load of great character actors because you still get some great ensemble cast with some character actors, but I think Ocean's Eleven, for example, is one of those rare films these days where you get. A lot of big stars in one film, uh, and I quite enjoy seeing those stars. Dogma play out was one. Each other. Dogma was one as well. Surprisingly, it had a, a big ensemble cast of just a lot of. But yeah, I love the scene in the film as well, where they go through practicing sort of if the talk, you know, they learnt German, and then you know, the, in in sort of the POW camp when they're trying to catch them out, one of the guys trying to catch them out doing the forgery says, you know, changes to English quickly and says, "I oh, don't let you know." Don't let them do that to you because you'll get caught out. And they're on the train as well. At the end, their escape, I think it's Richard Attenborough and, and one of the other characters, and they're on the train. And the German guard suspects them, starts talking to them in German, then changes to English, and he replies in English. And it's just... Oh. It's beautifully written. Yeah. yeah. No, it's... Oh, no. I, I love The Great Escape. I can watch that every Christmas happily. Uh, let's move on to your three then, James. Okay, so yeah, obviously, I've also kind of gone a bit linear here, a uh, bit abstract. Um, I've taken a different route to what a lot of our, our royalists might, and actually what a lot of the people on Twitter have emailed into me as well. So my first one is, is from a film that I loved as a child. It's a fantastic film. I've gone for Jareth, King of the Goblins from Labyrinth, played by the almighty David Bowie. He is probably my favourite king of all time. Uh, those of you who haven't seen the film, A, why? Uh, but B, uh, a young girl called Sarah who um, is having to look after her 
younger brother and he is crying. He's a little baby. And she asks the King of the Goblins to come and take him away. And like some kind of fantastical social services, Jareth turns up, takes the baby and promises to make him uh, a prince in the house of music. And what music? The David Bowie soundtrack is fantastic. The man is a, a master of disguise. He's very handy with his hands, as you see, with a lot of kind of uh, globe juggling and things like that. And no entendre meant there. Um, and let's be honest, he's clearly packing a lot of heat in those skin-tight jobbers there. Um, but yeah, my I, I love I love Bowie as Jareth King of the Goblins. He is he that almost sums up my childhood. That film, absolutely adore it. It's one of those films I'm, I'm sure I've seen when I was younger, but I have no recollection of. <laughs> I really, really do need to revisit it because people tell me about some things that happen in it. I go, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. But as the experience of sitting down and watching the film, I've just got no memory of it. Yeah, it's and uh, also yeah. it's it's a Jim Henson production, so it's got some brilliant um, character puppet design and things like that. So if if like me as well, you are a bit of a fan of the Jim Henson workshop and things like it's. It's a great film for that as well. Uh, it's written by Terry Jones, uh, one of the Pythons. Uh, music by David Bowie. Basically, it was if someone just put together a film that I would like in a blender and chucked it out at me. Um, but yeah, I, I, I adore Labyrinth. What's next then in your list? Okay, this is when I go a bit more abstract now. Okay, I uh, my uh, number two... My favourite Queen, oh, my, oh no, it's my second favourite Queen, um, is Queen soundtracks, uh, specifically to the film Flash Gordon. Um, I love, A, I love Flash Gordon, but there isn't actually a king or a queen in it. There's a few princes, there is obviously an emperor uh, with Emperor Ming, but the soundtrack is such a driving force in that film. Uh, queen did it in 1980, and it was the first time a rock band had been asked to score a film. Only two of the tracks actually have vocals in them. Um, and the rest of it is a lot of synthesizers. They were using the Moog synthesizer at the time. Uh, this week I found out it's not called a Moog. Apparently it's called a Moog to rhyme with Vogue. Uh, uh, it was the birthday oh. of the guy who created the what I always thought was the Moog synthesizer. And he said, no, my name rhymes with Vogue. I'm Robert Moog. Uh, there you go. So I would just burst another myth for people there. So I'm now going to use the correct name, the Moog synthesizer. Um, it has the brilliant title uh, song, Flash. Ah. Um, intro- <laughs> yeah. Really interestingly about this film, it was a complete flop. Um, it grossed $30 million across the world. $15 million of those were in the United Kingdom. We, this country, for some reason, saw something amazing in this film. Maybe it was the fact that Brian Blessed plays such a big role in it. God bless him. Um, Gordon's alive! Uh, I, 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 Flash Gordon, it's on probably at least three times a year. If you've not seen it, you must see it. It is pure high camp. In a way, a bit like Iron Sky as well. I don't know if it is brilliant or terrible, but I cannot stop watching Flash Gordon. Also, Queen did the soundtrack to Highlander as well, which is another great film, although you can't find the soundtrack anywhere. There was never a soundtrack released, and their um, Kind of Magic album became an unofficial soundtrack for that film, which I found quite interesting. That was 1986. So, yeah, my second choice is Queen film soundtracks. And finally, then, in James's list. Okay, this is quite apt, uh, considering the film we are going to review afterwards. My final choice is The Alien Queen 
from Aliens, James Cameron's sequel to Alien from 1986. Um, it was typical Cameron, really. Uh, the Alien scared the absolute bejesus out of me in the original <laughs> film, but Cameron decides to go bigger, bolder, more complicated, and Aliens features the first time that we see the Alien Queen, uh, who is giving birth to her young. Cameron actually decided not to bring H.R. Geiger back uh, as the only creature that needed redesigning was the alien <coughs> queen. Cameron, in typical style, said, oh, I've already done some drawings of it. So James Cameron designed the alien queen rather <laughs> than H.R. Geiger. But it still looks good. Um, and the reason it took 14 to 16 operators to operate it at any one time, it's a massive piece of equipment, you know, puppet, whatever. Uh, but the great thing about it is it's got two fantastic scenes. I think there are a lot of flaws with aliens, but I really enjoyed it. Um, however, there's the scene where Ripley rescues Newt, the young girl, uh, who is cocooned in the alien queen's nest lair type thing. And uh, a look where Ripley basically bargains between, as, as a mother figure to another mother figure to let her take Newt away. And she won't, She threatens to burn the eggs. And so there's this kind of uh, impasse, almost a, a Mexican standoff between the alien queen and Ripley. It's a really nice scene. But then another alien cocks it all up and Ripley has to burn the eggs. Alien queen goes absolutely mental. Uh, and that leads us to the climactic battle. One of my favourite scenes from any film ever where... The alien queen has, it's that classic horror standard where you think you've killed the bad guy. And then all of a sudden, everyone's having a bit of a laugh and a joke. Oh, has, and then all of a sudden, the alien queen just rips Bishop in half. The android is spewing out his android milk everywhere. Uh, and the alien queen is looking for Newt. And Ripley gets into the mechanical suit, which they planted in our thoughts earlier in the film. If you're going to show a gun in the first act, then make sure it gets shot in the final act. Ripley comes out in her mechanical suit and yells get away from her you bitch fantastic brings the house down alien queen excellent good choices I yeah. Think. yeah. <laughs> uh, so Owen how about you round us off with your three and triple bill sure okay well I think you've all said that you, you've picked some kind of abstract um, films I think mine are probably going to trump those in the abstract states, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> the first film I've come for, uh, well, I don't think any of my films have got either kings or queens in, so just bear with me as I go through them. But the first one I chose is uh, King Kong from 1933. I thought I had to, yeah. I had to choose that. Yeah, Brilliant film. Uh, it's, uh, it's not dated at all, really, only in terms of, you know, the animations. But I still think that's that's charming about it. It's It's... A little bit old, Hollywoody, you know, monster film, creature feature kind of thing. And it's, um, I really like that about it. But it's got good performances. Um, I think Robert Armstrong is in it, and he's, he's quite good. Um, Bay Ray as well, um, who I'm going to talk about a little bit later anyway. And it's got great scenery in it as well. It's just a great film, isn't it? A proper action, um, Hollywood beast creature film. And so, I mean, if you don't know the story of it, it's... Um, film crew who go to visit an island to shoot um, actually I think it's called Skull Island which is, it leads to one of my favourite Simpsons quotes as well from one of their Halloween episodes where they're going to Monkey Island, what's their apes but they're not as big, I think it's one of the Simpsons Halloween episode quotes, but anyway I'm going off on a bit of a tangent again, 
It's no, it's a great film. Um, they go to this island to shoot a film and end up discovering a giant gorilla who they decide to take back with them uh, to make a lot of money from. And it, obviously, it all goes wrong. The, the big King Kong gorilla escapes. There's a few fights in between with uh, I think he has a fight with a T Rex on the island. Um, but no, it's it's great, and I think it's got great performances, and I've got a lot of love for it because it's one of those films that I first saw and I thought, yeah, I really like that. That's just such a brilliant film. Um, I think it's a little bit similar in terms of um, uh, Godzilla, which came a few few years later. But God, Godzilla's just absolutely epic film. But I couldn't include that. I thought, I could, who can I fit in Godzilla into this triple bill? <laughs> uh, I have to leave that one out. So I went for King Kong. That's, that's my first choice. Um, but nice. it's been remade a few times. So I, know, I know that Peter Jackson's film was trashed a little bit. Some people either really love it, but there are some people who absolutely hate it. I didn't mind it, actually. I thought uh, I thought it was quite a good adaptation of that story. Um, if a little long. But no, the original's the best. <laughs> okay. Uh, shall I I'll move straight on to my second choice, which is also, I mean, it's getting even more abstract the further I go along now, but I went for King of Kong, the um, American documentary about a novice gamer, Steve Weeb, uh, or Steve Weeby, as he keeps getting called who um, challenges Donkey Kong legend Billy Mitchell to the title of best player at Donkey Kong, the classic arcade machine, um, by attempting to smash his uh, his high score record in public. Uh, and there's a lot of drama. That it's, it's a great, it's, it's a documentary, but it's such, um, uh, it's more like a drama almost. It's got a villain to it. It's got a hero. Um, there's lots of twists and turns with the story, a few sad, sad moments there, a few sort of glorious triumphs from, from certain people. Um, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not fiction, even though it's, it's come out afterwards, you know, a lot of things were either overemphasized with certain characters or they just completely washed over certain elements to the, to the story. Um, but it's great, it's dramatic, it's entertaining, uh, even though, it's just about some people playing video games. I think it's, you know, <laughs> it puts a lot of people off when they when you say, oh yeah, but it's this documentary about some people playing Donkey Kong. Um, which you know, it's fair enough. I think some people that's not going to appeal to them. Uh, but I loved it. I thought it was great. Billy Mitchell follows... is now a, a legend, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> and it follows all the conventions of a sports film, uh, a fictional. Yeah, it follows it does, the same yeah. conventions of Rocky. Uh, you know, follow say or Karate Kid. You know, it is about an outsider who is uh, who has a natural talent and he's trying yep. to make his way in the world where there are a load of rules and a load of people determined to stop him achieving his goal, including the bad guy who is apparently the best at the game, but no one actually really sees him play at much. These it's funny. Is he in fact that at one point I swear in, there's almost like a training montage where they use the music from Karate Kid, you know, you're the best yeah. around. And they actually <laughs> use that in there. And um, it, it is a great fun film, but, when he is trying to break the record uh, in that arcade, I was genuinely gripped, and I yeah, there yeah. is there is a human drama at the heart of this film. Abs- no, I, I I love this film. I I've tried to get as many people as possible to watch it. It's a great great documentary. It is, yeah, it's awesome. So I couldn't leave that out. I know it's not really got a king in it. It's not really got a queen. I mean, even the character in the Bill game... Bill Mitchell is the king of video games. Uh, we'll give him that on official. Yeah, we'll give it that. Okay, brilliant, thanks. <laughs> I'll have it just because it's not king from the title. Um, okay, well, actually, I've sort of generated a little bit of a theme within a theme as well, because my final choice 
um, is although it's not Faye Ray herself who's the um, who plays Anne in the original King Kong film, mm-hmm. she started something where she was you probably heard of the term Scream Queen, mm-hmm. where you uh, obviously a strong female character in a film, uh, usually a horror film. Um, it is classed as this term. They get bracketed into Scream Queen, so they're these mm-hmm. iconic female characters. So although it's not Faye Ray, she was the first person who that term was invented for, for her part in King Kong. But I've gone for my favourite um, Scream Queen, which is Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween. I think she puts in a brilliant performance in that. She's just fantastic and um, very strong female character. She's, um, But it's more about Jamie Lee Curtis' performance, I think, rather than the character herself, who uh, the character's, you know, Though she's quite a strong character anyway, and she's she's quite sort of um, uh, sexual character. She's really um, a lot of depth to the character as well, considering she's just the, the main um, character in a horror a horror film or a slasher. Even and generally, they don't get much character development. But it's more, like I say, more about Jamie Lee Curtis' performance, who um, puts in one of the best lead performances of any horror film. Never mind just being a slasher. Never mind just being one of the greatest horror films ever in Halloween. Um, in John, it's John Carpenter's classic. But she, yeah, she's brilliant. So I've gone for a scream queen. And of course, her, her mom um, was also a scream queen herself. Yes. Uh, yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in, um, in Psycho. So there's a bit of a family history there, I guess, with um, her, the daughter taking the, the crown from her, her own queen, her own mom. So Yeah. That's what, no, I, I, that, that's a, a tenuous link, but I'll let you have it <laughs> simply because it's yeah. such a great film. It's the second John Carpenter film we've mentioned today, which always, uh, yeah, that's always going to please me. Um, and no, I think you're right. It's interesting. I've a few people have seen Halloween that I've kind of either introduced to or spoken to them about it, and they've seen it more recently for the first time. And in some of those cases there's been almost the, uh, what I'm going to call from now on, the Owen reaction to Star Wars scenario, <laughs> um, where they went, I've seen all this before. Oh, yeah, it was, and it, I think it really makes it important that sometimes you have got to judge a film by the context in which it was made. You, I, it is really difficult to ignore the historical context, especially of films that are over 10, 15 years old, because... I would say, yeah, you have seen it all before, but this is where it came from, and that's what annoys me when people don't see Halloween for the genius that it is, is, guess what, everything you think is boring and passe, it all came from here, basically. Obviously, he stole and ripped off a little bit, as all great filmmakers do, but he created the modern slasher horror film with that that film, and no film since has topped it. So, uh, no, I, I love Halloween. Well, yeah. that's it for Triple Bill. We'll be back after a brief musical interlude with a review of Prometheus. Okay, so the big release we reviewed this week was Prometheus, directed by... Ridley Scott and starring the likes of Charlize Theron, um, Guy Pearce, Mike, uh, Michael Fassbender, uh, Idris Elba, and many others. Before we get on to the review, somebody from the podcast went to the world premiere in London. Yeah, I did. 
Oh, my God. Amazing. Um, yeah, it's one of those bucket list type things is, do you know what? Just go to a world premiere and walk the carpet. That, that'd be nice if that ever happened to me in my life. And it did this week. I couldn't believe it. Um, basically, I, I won the tickets. It's not like uh, the podcast has got that much influence yet, but you, you never know in the future. Um, but no, I, got, I, I won tickets to this. So I was queued up and I could hear all the cheers and I was queued up around like a fence. And I thought, they're just going to sneak us in the back door. And then went round the corner and, oh, my God, I've, it was like I'd been spewed up onto the, uh, well, it was actually a blue carpet. A bit disappointing, but, you know, the red carpet. Uh, and there I was on the carpet at the same time as Ridley Scott, Charlize Theron and Guy Pearce. And I basically just went and stood next to Guy Pearce when he was chatting to the media. Uh, I'll put some photos up on failcritics.com so you get some photos of the event there. Um, it was an absolutely massive cinema. Really weird. Uh it must have been about 500 seats, possibly a 1,000 seats in there, I don't know. Each seat had a, a bar of green and black chocolate and a bottle of water placed on it. A very nice touch. Ridley Scott introduced the film 10 feet in front of me because I was on the very front row, which obviously in cinema, you know, in watching a film terms, that gave me a neck ache for the rest of the film. But I don't care because I got to be 10 feet from Ridley Scott when he introduced the film, which is brilliant. Uh, and it was great. At the, when the credits come up at the beginning of the film, everyone applauded every single credit that came up, even down to like costume design and stuff like that. It was a really nice atmosphere, <laughs> which may have flavoured uh, my review. We'll, we'll wait and see. I don't know. But um, after the film, all the stars kind of shuttled off in their taxis. I thought, oh, they're just off to some party. You know? uh, and I went to Chinatown uh, for supper with my friend. And a, a bloke there was chatting to us about the film. He said, oh, did you see the film? Uh, he chatted to us and I said, oh, it was really great to see Benedict Wong. He said, oh, Benny Wong, I know him mainly from poker. I was like, oh, okay. And we chatted about the uh, the makeup and the CGI in the film, uh, made a reference to Benjamin Button uh, and said about, you know, and we were talking about this, the old man makeup in Benjamin Button. This guy then said, oh, we've got some tickets to the app party, but we can't make it. You have them. Oh, Oh, okay, brilliant. Uh, and I'm thinking, okay, how do I catch my last train and go to this after party? And I'm weighing that up. And my mate went, you know who that was, don't you? I was, no. And that was Jason Fleming. Oh, okay, because it's ages since I've seen Lockstock. Turns out Jason Fleming was also in Benjamin Button, which is why he had such great knowledge of the CGI and the makeup used for the old man character in Benjamin Button. Um, so I was like, oh, ridiculous. I couldn't believe that. So we made it to the after party, swanned around, got some, uh, got some free cocktails, some really punchy... Uh, passion fruit cocktail. We asked for a beer and, you know, clearly got shown up for the non-industry losers that we are. So we ended up with some kind of passion fruit cocktail. Around. And that's when I saw Benedict Wong. Those of you, you, you might not know the name, but you'll know the face, hopefully. He was uh, one of the stars of 15 Stories High, brilliant sitcom with Sean Locke from about 2001, I think it yeah, was. Fantastic. He was also, yeah, he's in Moon. Uh, he, he plays one of the industry guys in Moon. He was also in Father Ted when uh, they did the, the racist Father Ted episode in, in that old Chinatown area of Craggy Island and things like that. Uh, so I, I just I kind of flush with my own enthusiasm and some punchy cocktails. I went up and introduced myself and said, oh, yeah, yeah, Jason, Fle I, had, I had dinner with Jason Fleck. <laughs> sat behind me but I did a yeah he says hi he says Benny Wong's a top bloke he, he says hi and then he um, stayed and chatted to me for ages and we he was Benedict Wong was saying I'm really worried now I'm actually getting major parts and I'm really worried that um, 
this old sitcom I did while I sat around wanking and eating pot noodles is actually <laughs> going to end up in producers' laps now, and they're going to think, oh, no, we can't cast Benny Wong in anything because <laughs> look at where he's <laughs> So, um, yeah, basically, premieres, yeah, I could do that a bit more often. So uh, anyone out there listening to this, if you can wangle some more premiere invites, any of us would take them. I did, when I was in um, America, was stood, didn't get to the premiere myself, but was stood outside the premiere of uh, the Emma Stone film, Easy A. And oh, yeah. Quite nice to see her up close, but I mean, other than that, it wasn't particularly <laughs> remarkable. Uh, so when Ridley Scott introduced the film, did he say anything particularly you know, interesting or insightful or... Well, he he didn't say too much because he was saying I know he was quite a humble bloke actually saying look I know you're all here to watch the film you don't want to listen to me talk for ages but he did I think a few points to remember and it was helpful that I had the filmmaker tell me this before I watched it and I always think it would be really nice to either have filmmaker introduce a film or do a Q and A afterwards at any screening that'd be amazing wouldn't it because I've seen a few like that where I've been able to ask questions afterwards and it it helps you enjoy the film so much more but he said. It's not a direct prequel, okay? And he made it really clear that it's not a direct prequel. It shares the same DNA as the as his film Alien, okay? And we sometimes think of the franchise being really... Uh, yeah, he only did one of the Alien films. So he, is, he can only really talk about his film. Also, he said, and I found this quite interesting, he's not really a director, which <laughs> was someone who's made so many films and has directed... It's really interesting. He said he is... He sees himself uh, uh, as kind of more... He works in set design and pictures. He's not a director of actors. He finds that the most difficult part of the job that he does. And so that's why if you speak to actors who've worked with him, he gives them a lot of rein uh, to bring a lot of what they want to tell. Very different to some other directors who will be, you know, like Kubrick made people take, you know, sometimes 60, 70 takes. He had a very specific idea of how their performance should be. Ridley Scott isn't like that. Ridley Scott is interested in how a film looks. And you get the impression that he enjoys doing the big, epic, sweeping scenes. And he does the intimate uh, characters talking to each other. It's almost like he films those because he knows they need to be in the film. But that's not what he enjoys the most. And I think if you if you knew that before watching a film, that would definitely... Uh, maybe not change your perception of the film, but you would understand where he's coming from as a filmmaker a bit more. Yes, I think I'll come on to the, the prequel thing in spoiler alert. Um, yeah. I think I think it's worth, for the people who are listening who haven't seen the film yet, don't go into it expecting Alien. Because yeah. from, from a, what a lot of comments I've seen about the film, that's what people are doing. and. Um, yeah, it's not the same kind of film as Alien. It might well be set in the same universe and share certain things, but it's a completely different type of film to Alien. Yeah, definitely. And uh, unfortunately, that's a little bit the fault of the marketing, because not only is the marketing for the film, for the last six months been going, uh, Ridley Scott, director of Alien, returns to science fiction. But if I, I've looked, gone back and looked at the trailers, and the trailers give a different impression of the film. So if people have been bombarded by these trailers for the last three or four months, in a way, I can understand why they came out thinking, well, that 
I was expecting something different but from that. Apparently that was deliberate, though, that the trailers were mis- misleading, which seems yeah. to have backfired them on, on them a bit. I think it has backfired a little bit, um, because if you, if you, the thing is, if you get people excited about a new Alien film, because Alien is is a masterpiece, and people, if you get people even thinking slightly that there's a new Alien film, and then it isn't an Alien film... You are go. You do run that risk, I think, which is a shame because. Well, let's go on to the review, I suppose. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, from from the trailers, I was, you know, a bit apprehensive about going to see it because you get at the beginning, you know, from the director of Alien, Blade Runner, and Gladiator, and you think they're all excellent films, but you know, the last one was a long time ago. Yeah. Robin yeah. Hood wasn't very good. I mean, I've yeah. not seen Kingdom of Heaven. Apparently, Kingdom of Heaven isn't very good, but the director's cut is. Yeah, that's also what I've heard. I've only seen the original Kingdom of Heaven, which bored the crap out of me. So, um, yeah, I think Black Hawk Down is the last enjoyable Ridley Scott film I've seen, and Gladiator is the last great Ridley Scott film up until now. It it makes you sort of worry when you see that. Yeah, they're all excellent, but, I mean... When when was Gladiator about ten twelve years ago? So, what, yeah, know, exactly. What you know, it's it's a long barren spell. While he's actually been making, it, it's not like James Cameron Avatar and hasn't done anything. Actually, done anything for so long. Mm. It, it's you know he's been doing stuff, but it's not been as good as. But anyway, yep. it was a really good film, especially if you don't take it as of you know as an alien, basically. Yeah, I think that's the key, isn't it? I mean, if you just go into it expecting a really good sci-fi film, that's what you get, I think. If you go into it expecting, oh, well, it's going to be this prequel that lead, it ties really neatly into the next Alien film, then you, you're right, you, you're going to be a bit disappointed. I, I, think, I, think. I, I think it was partly that, and partly people thinking it's going to be the same style-wise as Alien, whereas Alien's yeah, more of a kind yeah, of right. horror film designed to scare you in in the same kind of way as the thing is, it, uh, mm. this film Prometheus isn't that kind of film. No, right. not at all. Uh, and in a way, um, to go a bit more sci-fi and geeky, and just stick on that prequel thing a l- just a little bit longer. It you know it is a bit of a prequel in narrative terms. Like I said, not in stuff. It reminds me of um, the television series Battlestar Galactica, the the, the reboot, and then the prequel to that Caprica. Okay. Caprica, it, yeah, it is a prequel and that it takes place in the same universe before the, the events of Battlestar Galactica. But thematically uh, and stylistically, totally different. And in a way, I think I, I think Prometheus uh, shares a lot more in common than with Blade Runner in some areas than it does with uh, Alien. Um, so, but, you know, Apart from the whole prequel thing, imagine you went into it not knowing even it was connected to Alien. Well, it imagine you imagine you'd go into it never seeing Alien or heard about Alien. Yeah, exactly. Which... So try try and get into that point of view and go in. The opening scene looks fantastic, and I, even in three D, it looked fantastic. I'm not a fan of three D. I think the three D in the film tails off. Uh, and is a bit pointless and redundant. But the opening five minutes or so, I thought the 3D worked, and it helped, uh, you know, that, those opening shots in Iceland and then on the Isle of Skye. It's really interesting to um, to see. This is a, a film set, you know, hundreds of years in the future. Is it? No, it's not. I, I can't remember now. I, I'm struggling I think, with the I think, I, think it's, <laughs> I think it's, it's um, towards it's the, the end of the 20th. I think the main body of the film is set sort of, 
2194, if I remember rightly. I could yeah, be wrong. I, I can't remember um, exactly. Oh, but, no, no, it's 2089, isn't it? 2094. So it's less than 100 years away, to be fair. Um, but it was really great because you just, you know, doesn't matter. It could have been set at any time, those opening scenes. They're just um, really nice scenes of some of the most beautiful places on this planet, which was great because we've never seen that in a in a in an alien film before. We've never seen shots on Earth, so that was new. Um, I think but, I- you know, it does look fantastic and all the way through the film looks gorgeous i mean i think we should we should we should sort of say how the film kicks off it's essentially a couple of scientists um played um by By newman face and uh the other chap yeah the other chap i kept i kept thinking was someone i think i kept thinking he was tom hardy and he definitely wasn't yeah 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 um, but yeah, anyway, they Logan Marshall Green. That's they him. kept they, they found throughout different places and different cultures throughout Earth uh, the same kind of pictogram of of people worshiping basically a large human type figure with a kind of you know same pattern of planets or stars, and they deduced that this was a map and an invitation to go and essentially meet their maker. Uh, so the Wayland Corporation decided to fund this mission to go to this planet and meet their maker. Yeah, and or actually, and and the film actually properly starts off uh, know, weird, cold open with this weird kind of superhuman Adonis, pale Adonis type figure, um, uh, just essentially uh, committing suicide via some horrific form. And, and I thought that was a really stunning opening to the film mm. that made you sit up and go, Christ, what? And I, and I think, what was that about kind of thing? I, I, th- <laughs> I think it, does it, does it imply that him doing that, sacrificing himself, that it, it kick-started human evolution? I yeah, don't, I, I think I, so, because if, when, he, when he falls into the, hmm. the water, and, you know, he becomes yeah. like the, his, his DNA falls apart and then he becomes these yeah. cells that start multiplying. I think well, it's, the whole film's theme is basically around uh, creation and destruction, isn't it? I think yeah. at one point they even explicitly say that. I think the first, that first bit, which is magnificent, I have to say, I really, I, like um, uh, James, the 3D, it's not really something that I'm into, but I thought it really worked with that scene, the opening, the opening yeah. bit with the... Um, the, the guy who sacrificed himself. I thought it was brilliant. It really looked stunning. I mean, but yeah, I think it's about creation, isn't it? So that was set however yeah. many years I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it, it's, I think because we're in danger of spoiling the film too much, we should probably talk about some of the actors' performances because there were some really yeah. good ones. Michael Fassbender was, as ever, fantastic as the android David, who was, you know, had a bit of personality as an android and, and sort of seemed to, I suppose, pity the humans in a way. Yeah, he, yeah, and he was one of the links to the alien universe in a, in, a, in a sense, wasn't he? Because he was an android on board the ship um, with potentially his own um, agenda or an agenda that had been given to him, at least. Um, the main characters don't really trust him hugely. But yeah, I haven't heard a single bad word about Fastbender in this film, and it is a brilliant performance. Uh, I was chatting to my good friend Jason Fleming about this. Um, where he, he really, really channeled David Bowie in The Man Who Fell to Earth almost as well. There was a lot of the thin white duke about him. And obviously in the film, he is watching and basing a lot of his uh, exterior mannerisms on 
Lawrence of Arabia, uh, which is, was a really nice touch as well, I thought. Uh, but yeah, he's fantastic. I also do think that uh, Numi Rapace is brilliant in this film. Uh, and I really liked Sean Harris as well, who was one of the um, one of the other crew members who... Uh, yeah, Byfield. Yeah, I, I won't go into too much here, but I thought Sean Harris uh, really, really good. My my worries, and uh, not small. I just thought at one point there were just too many characters. Um, there was too much going on, and so there are some really good character. There's some really good actors here who don't have much to do. Um, That's right. Mainly Charlize Theron, right. not too much to do. No, her Idris Elba, very little. Her uh, Guy Pearce. Yeah, there was the two sort of um, co-pilots, I suppose they were. One played by your yeah. your new best friend, um, Benny Wong. Yeah, right, but yeah, and and the other guy that was was they seemed to be they seemed to be in there as kind of a comic relief in yeah in kind of the same way. Well, not the same way, but in a similar way to sort of R two D two and C three PO in Star Wars, a comic relief. But they just didn't seem to be used that much. No, no you know, and again, uh, they were kind of buddy elements. Yeah, they, they were they kind. Were yeah, the, yeah. The, the sort of but the, they, the, the mates who sort of kept making jokes and taking the mick yeah. out of each other, but they just didn't seem to be used as much as to sort of make it effective. No, and that they also had a link back to this shared alien DNA, though, because they reminded me of the grunts um, right at the beginning of Alien, who are demanding. Uh, extra overtime, extra payment for going investigating this rock that they've received a distress signal for. So again, uh, there, there was an interesting element of some grunts in space, and uh, and Ridley Scott quite likes the idea of normal people going about normal everyday work in this extraordinary environment. But I think there were too many of them. Mm, there, and there were, too there, many there was another one who seemed to be sort of in charge of security, and the only thing you ever see him do is sort of say. He sort of, um, I think, you know, the someone says to him, oh, "We're not taking any guns on this on this trip," and he's like, "Well, yeah, well, that's just just stupid," and that's all he seems to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's but where I... the film falls down a little bit. Is it's a little bit convoluted, a little bit complicated. Maybe tries to do a little bit too much with too many characters, especially in in the middle section, which. If if there is a poor section of this film, I, I wouldn't go so as to say it's poor, but I think the middle section is where the film drags a little bit. Mm. I think sort of with with these characters that were so much, they shouldn't have really bothered introducing them. They should have just had them there, and and they were either you know they they were just sort of red shirts who get killed off essentially. Yeah. Um, but but I admire the ambition of mm. trying to say, look, we've got. Yeah, most, a lot of other science fiction films wouldn't have even bothered having a backstory and character for yeah. these characters. They would have just, yeah. But I, I admire the ambition. Um, but in a way, this film is slightly hamstrung by the fact that it's only two hours, four minutes long, and that's quite rare mm. for a big epic science fiction blockbuster these days. I was it expecting seems to be, it to be longer. More people trying to push to two and a half hours. Um, Ridley Scott has apparently said there is a lot of stuff he would have liked to put in the film. And in true Ridley Scott style, I imagine we will see a director's cut of this film That's... in two or three years, which may well answer a lot of the questions or the criticisms that people are currently I, aiming at. I think it could be a lot sooner with a director's cut for this. I mean... Quite possibly. Um, although he's going straight into shooting uh, The Counselor in about four weeks after this. And then he's lining up 
uh, Blade Runner two, apparently. So oh. I think I think he could do it sooner, <laughs> but I don't know if his schedule will allow it. He seems to be and and of, and they are now talking about a sequel to Prometheus as well. But yes, we'll, I mean we'll without, without spoiling that. it, yeah, the maybe, ending maybe doesn't James leave Cameron it. Will do the sequel to this one. Oh uh, God! Have a <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, we'll, we'll leave the review there. But join us for spoiler alert if you've seen the film and want to listen to our more in-depth analysis, I suppose. Failed Critics is produced and hosted by Steve Norman with regular contributions from James Diamond, Jerry McCauley and Owen Hughes. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and the podcast is hosted by Liberated Syndication Podcasting Hosting Services. Further details available at failedcritics.com. Welcome to Spoiler Alert, where we will talk about Prometheus in full. So before we start, if you haven't seen the film and you don't want to know what it's all about, and everything didn't just turn off now. Um, but if you've seen it or you don't mind it being spoiled, then by all means carry on listening. I want to take issue with it being uh, not a direct sequel uh, prequel. I-, I think that's a load of rubbish, really. <laughs> even though it come from Ridley Scott himself, it, it was. I mean, the end <laughs> from from the ending alone, it it was. Yeah, I think you could argue it's not a direct prequel in terms of it leads straight into Alien. There is clearly still room between the films Mm. to fill in some extra... Uh, and I think even, it, I think that's where this talk of a sequel to this it, is coming it, yeah. from. It, it's a prequel in the way that The Phantom Menace is a prequel to A New Hope, not yeah. not Revenge of the Sith is a prequel to A New Hope. Yes, exactly. But, I mean, from, they're, they're, it asks a lot more questions, actually. It, it leaves very few questions really answered. Um but it sets up it sets up um new uh, Elizabeth Shaw new Mirapay as a a new Ripley. Yeah. Um she's clearly now got yeah. a mission. But interestingly Ripley never had that drive and mission. Ripley's entire existence has always been about survival. Mm. Ripley um, Ripley yeah. Ripley tended to fall into the situation exactly. out, out of out um, of sheer bad luck whereas whereas Elizabeth Shaw hit, you know, the, the trip to find this planet was planned and what she's doing now after the film's ended, um, going off to yeah. find, you know, because it turned out the planet was sort of a, a military facility. So she's gone off trying to find where these people that created humans and tried to then destroy humans came from. You know, she's she's planned loosely, obviously, because she hasn't had much time to plan yeah. it, but she's, she's planned her actions. Whereas, whereas yeah. Ripley was just sort of, Right, well, I've, you know, the aliens turned up, got to deal with it. Now I've escaped. Oh, there's more of them. Yeah. Yeah. Ripley's was almost like a kind of, uh, Ripley's story was the, the, the scream queen almost, but she was a far stronger character or uh, in a way. But she, yeah, she was, things kept happening to her. Whereas Elizabeth Shaw is making these things happen. So there's a very different character, a very different character arc we've got going there, which I think is very interesting. One, th- one thing that has annoyed me ever since I got out, uh, was okay, it, and, and maybe one of you two can help me understand this a bit more. Was about uh, the map, the invitation. Okay, why? Uh, I, I'm just struggling to work out why these cultures across the earth were pointing to a weapons facility rather than pointing to where their creators came from. Because I'm assuming uh, 
this is a bit of the plot that I am struggling to put together here, was obviously it wasn't an invitation. I don't know. Was it a warning? Don't go here. I, I'm not sure because we don't seem to have... The humans on Earth can't have known what was there. So it can't be a warning. Um, but I, did, but, yeah, but I can't... I'm, that, I'm confused thing, but how, how, do, how do they know that, that that place exists in the first place? I mean, you get well, the, yeah. the original guy who um, kind of almost disintegrates himself to create life on Earth. Uh, yeah. Hence, you know, the DNA being shared between everybody but, and, and these alien things as it, well. But it implies but, that... But it doesn't, it doesn't seem to leave a message anywhere. So how do these mm, civilizations, I mean, these ancient civilizations, know that this star pattern exists? It, 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 it implies to me that the, the aliens had contact with human civilizations throughout human history um, yeah. as as people who created humans and that's how yeah. they that's how them. that's how yeah. that's how they guided them and that's how they've left stories and and things and sort of um whatever for, for the map but why they put it to a weapons facility rather than their actual home yeah. planet I don't know I mean maybe it's something <laughs> to be you know because you were the were the aliens planning on coming back to earth and then it all went wrong for themselves on you know yeah. on this weapons facility or were they intending to send humans there to pick up a virus or the illness or whatever it was to take back to earth yeah it's definitely very very open um as to what that's about uh and sometimes that's done on purpose, and sometimes it's done because they haven't really come up with a, a, a reason. Because I, I, I really like, I really liked it from watching the trailers. I really liked that setup of look, they're all pointing to the same place. Um, mm-hmm. And if it what, and if it was the engineer's homeland, that to me would have made sense. You could have made that's a really good you know argument there because they have been guiding us. You know, you, there's the whole thing where they talk about um, arguing against centuries of uh, Darwin. Uh, and basically arguing that there isn't such the evolution has been caused by the engineers who have evolved us kind of thing. Mm. So you can, I could get that if it was going to there, but when it turned out that it wasn't an invitation and, uh, and that was scary, but it didn't make sense with the beginning of the film to me. Um, The other thing that really, really kind of wound me up once the film had finished was why, why did they have Guy Pearce play Wayland? Um, mm. If they're only going to show him in slightly shabby-looking old man makeup, um, uh, this that that really bugged me. Why not just a just get an old man? Um, <laughs> yeah, because because we didn't see him as a young. Now the only thing I can think of is that maybe there was some more scenes left on the cutting room floor of a younger Wayland that we've not seen, and obviously there was the viral video of Guy Pearce's Wayland. Uh, in 2023, giving a, a TED lecture. Um, so that, you know, there are some reasons, but in the film, if you came to the film without seeing much of the marketing, you would say, why was Guy Pearce in old man makeup? Um, because that, it, it just felt... Old man makeup never works, in my opinion. Um, it's really difficult to pull off uh, without you going... I was sat there going that's Guy Pearce and that looks a bit weird and it put me off. Um, and then there was the whole, uh, the fact that he was um, Charlize Theron's character's father, which really didn't feel like much of a reveal at all. That was really poorly made. It it, that, that reveal was just nothing, was it? It didn't seem, yeah. to, it didn't seem to work. It just didn't seem, you know, that 
it didn't because the obviously yeah. obviously the 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 thing was that that David the android played by Michael Fassbender was yeah was as as Wayland said himself more of a son or more of a child to him yeah. than he's ever had. Then it reveals that Charlize Theron's character, uh, Wickers or Vickers, whichever it was, yeah. is his daughter. I mean, she just I don't I didn't think her character was particularly brilliant or offered a lot anyway. And and, the- and from quite early on. I thought she was going to be the the reveal was she was going to be an android as well, um, because yeah, she it, but she seemed to be quite happy she to was very cold. Wasn't yeah, she, she was very cold. Yeah. Seemed quite happy to make decisions that humans might not make because you know they're hard decisions. They involve emotion and that. And she was quite yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, it, she, it was. But, um, and when Idris Elba said to me, said to her, "Are you are you an android? Are you a robot?" And and yeah. then, then I thought it's going to you know it's, it. I was right, and I wasn't obviously, but. <laughs> yeah, it just didn't, it didn't it didn't seem to her character just didn't seem to work. No, and maybe that's because again, uh, maybe a lot of stuff got left on the cutting room floor. Maybe it's just not been put quite together properly in the edit. And mm. um, the the reason we didn't care about the reveal is because we didn't care about the characters. And maybe it's because maybe and it's because we haven't spent enough time with them. Um, or maybe it was just badly written. I don't know. I find it difficult that I find it difficult to believe it would just be a solely a case of bad writing. I think that there is stuff somewhere on the cutting room floor which would have made that make a bit more sense. I don't know. Well, maybe I'm just the being kind. Written, it wasn't the screenplay written for this or co-written with, by um, the uh, the guy from Lost. What's his name? Yeah. Uh, oh, God, uh, it was, wasn't uh, it? David Lindelof. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I can if there, if there are holes in it, I can probably understand uh, that's where they've come from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was there anything else that you felt didn't? Because I've I've got some. I want to end I, on some positives. I'm, I'm still. I'm, is, yeah, I, I, I'm. I'm still a bit unsure as to why Wayland wanted, um, you know, the the character to be, um. Yeah, you know, the main guy. I keep forgetting his name to be poisoned, and for her to be impregnated with sort of this alien. Well, you know, impregnated with an alien creature. Yeah, I, uh, my reading of it was Wayland wants immortality. Wayland doesn't want to die, and he thinks that whatever is going on here can somehow be used to provide eternal life. And. Uh, and and he's therefore quite willing to experiment on the people on the ship to see if the, that that's my reading of it. It might be the wrong reading. You guys might have a different reading of it. I, I uh, that, that was essentially what I thought as well. Um, you know, testing the thing on him just to see what would happen. Almost a, a litmus test, wasn't it? Rather than any plot-driven reason to do it. Um, I think it was just uh, look. This is this this stuff that's on this alien planet. We'll pull it in this bloke, and then you can see what happens to people. And also with with David the android, I didn't quite understand why at the end of the film, after sort of showing his his contempt towards humans and you know not really getting on with them, why he seemed so desperate to help Elizabeth at the end, or well, not desperate, but sort of changed his whole mindset on yeah. things and sort of just said, "Well, I can pilot this ship. So there's loads more of them." And- yeah, my understand again. My reading of that was a. He um, more than, he wants to. He has kind of achieved a sense of life more than anything, and this kind of goes into Blade Runner a little bit. Because um, if you you know the end of Blade Runner, um, 
is about an android uh, basically valuing any any life. He has he has discovered the the value of life, and he values any life, let alone his own. Um, and that's why he he again spoil it. Oh, you must have seen Blade Runner, people. That's why he saves Deckard at the end. Okay. Um, and <laughs> in this case, yeah. um, I think he has discovered that maybe there is something more important than. He never meant for this crew to die. He was just carrying out some orders. He's got no orders left now. Um, and I think he wants to survive himself. I think he's discovered that actually he wants to survive. And then you've also got the fact that clearly Fassbender is brilliant in this and the studios want him back for any potential sequel as well. Um, so I also think there is kind of been a commercial reason why they have uh, saved the android. Uh, and, and so I think that's taken over a bit of the plot there a little bit as well. One final... I don't know what you guys thought. Um... No, I'd agree with that. I think, it, I mean, it seems quite cynical to say that, doesn't it? That it, it, it was just a commercial thing almost to, to keep him around for any potential sequel. But that's the impression you get, isn't it? If it was... If yeah. He should have... His character should have died in that room with um, yeah. uh, Guy Pearce's character. But... Yeah, I felt a little bit cynical when I when it popped into my mind as well. That oh, perhaps they're just trying to trying to keep him around. But yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely agree. But also <laughs> at the same shame, time, you but... need a way to get you need a way to get Numi Rapace off that planet as well. And he was the last kind of real. He was the last believable. If you believe that he could change his mind, then it's believable that he could pilot the ship uh, and and take her where she wants to go. Whereas if he dies. You've got to believe that they're either she can work out how to fire ship, or there's some kind of like automatic homing beacon or something like. Yeah, you know, you've got to come up with maybe a, a slightly less believable way that she can continue the story forward as well. Oh. So, I think it was. I think for the story to move on from this film, he had to survive and make that decision. But you know, we can argue for days over whether or not that's a believable decision that he makes. I suppose. Just one other thing that that didn't make sense was that. Obviously, we there was a thing made of this, you know, um, surgical health pod thing mm. in Charlie, you know, in Vickers Charlie's Veron's character's room. Yet, when um, Elizabeth Shaw gets into it to have the the thing removed, it's only calibrated for men. Yeah, that, that was that just doesn't. That's well, just... I think I think that ties in with um, Wayland, doesn't it? Because the whole point is that Wayland was going to be the one who, you know survives he's going to be the person who goes back in that pod so even though that um theron's character is um sort of occupying you know, that space yeah. I think it's, it's supposed to be that it'll be wayland who's the guy who goes back in that pod that's what it, that's, that's really interesting i mean it's yeah. not it's not specifically explained but that's the um, impression I've that, got that's a it. really good reading of it i hadn't picked up on steve's problem with that but luckily uh, I think Owen solved it for me already before I've had time to worry about that. That's quite good. Yeah. But talking about that um, that scene, actually, I thought the scene where Elizabeth is try- is having that um, foreign body removed from her in that pot, that was, that was as close to Alien, really, apart from maybe the very end of the film um, mm. that you're going to get. And I think that was, that really shared the Alien film DNA. Uh, it was... It was this film's chestburster scene, wasn't it, really? It looked fantastic, and it genuinely creeped me out, and I was kind of gripping the edge of my seat as that whole scene played out. Well, it, um, that was fantastic filmmaking. Even though we did have a chestburster scene right at the end as well. 
yeah, yeah. But at that moment, I was thinking, ah, that's the chestburster scene. Yeah, that was, uh, I thought that scene looked great. And the other bit as well, again, the alien DNA. And it's a real shame Jerry's not here because that bit where the two <laughs> yeah. guys, uh, uh, and there's the kind of black gooey stream. And then what is essentially a penis just appears. Yeah. Out of the sh- and it yeah. was just the most phallic thing. And then, it, you know, Jerry were really happy because there was some proper homosexual deep-throating rape going on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was as blatant as Alien has ever been in terms of, um, I think it was, uh, did Dan O'Bannon write the original Alien? I think he did, about uh, wanting to physically rape the men in the audience. Um, that's what that scene did again. It was... It was more blatant than it ever was, but again, I, I like that. It was it was a nice touch and a not. It was saying, look, we're continuing this theme from Alien as well. So, uh, yeah, they were some good scenes. Mm. I didn't like Rafe Overall, Spall getting killed off. I just really like him from Hot Fuzz, and I didn't like him getting killed off that yes. or at all. No, no, and uh, yeah, and I, I was a bit, I was a bit sad that, like you say, some of the characters seem to just sacrifice themselves it was almost like they were there purely to sacrifice themselves mm. Idris Elba did basically nothing the entire so, film apart from look cool and then Shag Charlize were on and then, and then save everyone yeah and then uh, yeah and I, even I, then I, he didn't do a I, very good job of it uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, but I quite like this character though I mean he wasn't on screen much and I thought yeah. he did have a bit of a you know of all the characters all, well all the supporting characters if you like his was one of the ones that actually had a bit of development in it. I mean, um, uh, you talked about, um, what's his name, Sean Harris, mm. earlier on, who was a great character to watch on screen. Yeah. But he didn't develop much. No. I yourself, though, I thought, did. I thought he became this character who was there just as the, the captain of the ship. And then he had a change of heart. And, yeah, I mean, maybe it was a little flimsily done. But no, I, know, no, I, I quite like. I thought it's nice to see Idris Elba in a big film as well. Anyway, yeah. I, I yeah. quite like him from Luther and uh, of course The Wire. Yeah, yeah, no, and he he did he had a presence about him. Even he, did. he wasn't there a lot, but when he was on screen, you you enjoyed watching him, which was great. Um, yeah. And yeah, overall, I'd say it's it's an intelligent science fiction film, which we don't get many of these days. Uh, and I, the thing is, I, I know people who will tell me that uh, Inception is massively overrated and there's loads of plot holes in it. And, oh, God, how can you think that film's great? You know, sod you. Uh, it is. <laughs> uh, uh, and it's the same with this. I I think there's been some really sniffy reviews out there. And, so, uh, and I'm not saying everyone, but I think there's some reviewers out there who have been prepared to say this film was massively overhyped and was always going to disappoint and everything like that. I think some people took an agenda in that. Maybe I took an agenda into this film, considering, you know, I was hobnobbing with Charlize Ridley and everyone, um, that I was going to like this film, whatever. Maybe, yeah, I can't say for certain. But the fact is, I think good science fiction films should leave you asking questions. We'll have people debating uh, some of some true intentions of the filmmaker afterwards. It shouldn't tie up everything. Um, it looked fantastic, which is a big part of a, an in, mm-hmm. of a good science fiction block, but it looked fantastic. Um, great. There was some great set piece action. Uh, there were some great performances. It's not a masterpiece. Uh, it's not alien. It's possibly not. It's, pro- it's probably not even aliens, but it's a lot better than alien three. <laughs> 
Uh, and it's a lot better than most science fiction films that will come out this year and in the last few years as well. That's my kind of final opinion on it. I mean, it, does, yeah. it, did, it did have the potential to be great, though. That's what seems to be a little bit annoying, even though I enjoyed it. It did, it did have the sort of, you could see the bits there necessary yeah. to make it, it I mean, it, a great... it got spoiled at, at times, didn't it? I mean, the, the bit with the... Um, well, I suppose, it, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the little bit of, with, um, the, like, zombie-like character in it. You know, mm. it's a bit of a zombie yeah. reference. <laughs> but, you know, the, when he was sort of bent over outside of the ship, that was quite creepy. And then yeah. it turned into just this, you know, action-y bit, which wasn't so good. But I thought, you know, the film, up to that point, it was really subtly developing things. Uh, yeah. you know, the plot was moving on and then just to put that in felt almost like they've gone oh wait a minute this might be boring some people we'll put a bit of action in we'll put a little zombie yeah. creature in and it'll liven things up and actually it had the opposite effect of just mm. taking the film off in a weird direction yeah I think in, in true Ridley Scott fashion because uh, someone pointed out it might have been one of you two actually I can't remember someone pointed out to me this week um, it might have been Jerry in his absence um, Alien and Blade Runner were both quite you know had very mixed critical receptions on release and yeah. now are seen by anyone who is sane as being uh, absolute science fiction masterpieces um but again with blade runner the original theatrical release of blade runner is quite mixed and muddled and it is the director's cut which pulls things together i don't i know i shouldn't be making excuses but i honestly think that if and when a director's cut of this film appears I think that is the moment to truly judge it because I really think that if anything, the problem with this film is that a few, some things have been left out, which may well have answered a lot of our questions and hopefully Ridley will put them back in. And it seems to be his MO. He seems to get a film out for the studios to please the studios and then goes off and tinkers with it for a few years and then comes back and go, actually, this is what I wanted. Um, And unlike some filmmakers, George Lucas, for example, I think he usually does improve his films by doing that rather than sullying the memory of them. Well, I think, yeah, I think that's fair enough. I, I mean, I, I, would, I would be very interested to see a different cut of this film because um, I think we're all in agreement, although we've you know, criticised certain parts of it, I think we're all in agreement that we really enjoyed watching the film. Yeah. And uh, to see something that comes out with um, tying up a, a few loose ends maybe or getting rid of certain parts of the film that didn't quite fit it would be really interesting to see that. I would definitely um, like to see that cut of the film. I think that's as good a place to leave it as any. So before we finish up, James, just want to tell everyone where they can find everything again. Yeah, so remember, we have a new webpage. It is, nice and easy to remember, failedcritics.com. Uh, it's the home of our podcast, home of some regular articles, and we'd love you to kind of contact us and give us, you know, write some articles for us, give us some pitches for articles. Uh, we've got a new Twitter at Failed Critics, but you can still contact me at at the Failed Critic, uh, and obviously our Facebook, which is facebook.com/slash Failed Critic. Uh, 